This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Because I am a glutton for punishment, we are going to do this again. Because I feel you need a little bit of a... I don't know, a little bit of a slap on the wrist. We are going to do this again. What am I talking about? Well, uh, you may remember uh, we did this last week and it was I don't want to say it was an unmitigated disaster, but I will say things could have gone better last week when we did this. I am determined to get it right because I think the fault last week was in me. What am I talking about? Well, you may remember when we have governor, had Governor David Patterson on the program a few weeks ago, we were talking about a segment on the radio that Alex Bennett used to do called King of the Hill. And he used to, he used to, uh, Patterson used to listen to Alex Bennett do this segment all the time. And he spoke to me about it when he was on this show. What I would do is I would ask people to call up and to pick a topic that they wanted to debate. And... After the two debated, um, whoever the winner was would stay on. And then the next caller could call with, let's say, the person that won the debate was the person of political uh, philosophy that's conservative. The next caller calls up, and that caller takes a very conservative position, forcing the champion to debate, let's say, the more liberal position. So it was a test of... How well do you understand your adversary? If necessary, could you state your adversary's view uh, accurately? And the exercise I thought was particularly interesting because, uh, boy, there was a woman, I remember her name, Cheryl Blue, Hmm. a serious conservative woman, African-American, but she would flip on the dime and you would – and. When she got finished, she thought AOC was talking. (laughs) And she was, I think, a two-time champion of Governor's Island. So we are bringing this concept back. We're calling it the other side of Governor's Island. And what we're going to do, we had a winner last week. I believe it was Mike from Queens. And whoever wins this round of the other side of Governor's Island will not only get a prize of some sort, maybe the other side of Midnight T-shirt or baseball cap, but... We're going to invite all four winners of the other side of Governor's Island in studio to join me for a full hour, maybe even a full show, and to debate a lot of issues of the day. But I think part of the problem last week is maybe a lot of people didn't understand it. So the way the first round works is we're going to have two random callers, and if you want to be one of the random callers, call in now at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And I will assign the debate points for the the debate positions for the first two contest, contestants. And then whoever calls in next gets to debate whatever issue they want. And when you're debating, it doesn't matter what your actual opinion is. It's all about, like, so if you're in the position to defend, you have to take the opposite view of the person that's challenging you. Right? Any questions? Anyone? Anyone? Is that clear? I hope so. Okay. We're going to give you a brief demonstration so that you see how this uh, is supposed to work. And we have recruited Alex Barnard and Kenneth, the aspiring model. 
and he's going to try and put to rest any of those horrible misconceptions they have about the intellect of models, and they're going to kind of go through this first round. Alex, how are you? Hello, am I on? Am I on? Can you hear me? (laughs) (laughs) I'm good, I'm good, though. All right, and Kenneth, I got you there as well, right? Yes, sir, doing great. All right, great, okay. The first issue that you guys are going to cover, and then Matt Blaze and I will pick the winner, is the death penalty. Alex, um, you are going to be opposed to the death penalty. Kenneth, you are going to be for the death penalty. Uh, Kenneth, let me start with you. Tell me why you're for the death penalty. All right. So one reason I'm for the death penalty is I believe that for those that commit harsh, extremely harsh crimes such as murder and rape, I think that it is completely justified that if you kill someone, you yourself deserve to be killed. Sounds harsh, but don't do the crime if you can't do the, the, the time, I guess you could say. Alex Barnard, what is your retort? Well, I think for one, that the government should not have control over anyone's lives, no matter if they are a criminal or if, you know, if they're just a regular citizen. It's sort of similar to, I believe, the abortion question. In that, you know, even criminals have a right to decide what happens to their own bodies. Okay, and uh, Kenneth, um, we'll give you we'll give you a last word there. You you want to rebut Alex's point? Um, well, I would say that I don't. I mean, I don't know the exact statistics on this, but I'd assume that it's probably cheaper to kill someone than to keep them in prison for life. And why would you allow someone that, let's say, killed someone? Be allowed to to be in prison, be alive, eat a meal, have a meal every day, have a place to sleep, and be alive. In, yeah, even if it's in jail for life, why should they still be alive in prison? And the person that they killed is dead, and the family has to suffer with that. Okay, uh, Matt Matt Blaze, what do you think out of uh, out of that brief discussion? Who would you pick as the winner there? Kenneth. Kenneth. Okay. All right. So uh, we would disconnect Alex Barnard and then Kenneth would move on to the uh, next round and someone would call in. Right. So I I think we're now and, and then if I call in and challenge Kenneth, I would then say, well, you know, I want to debate whether or not marijuana should be legal. And I'll say marijuana should be legal because of And then Kenneth would say. And then the other person would say, well, so that's the idea. 60 seconds, 90 seconds, or, you know, as long as it's interesting. 800-848-9222. If you, we've had some good callers who are debaters on this show. Jennifer in Boston. Steve from Manhattan. I know he doesn't, he doesn't call our show, but uh, Stan calls some of the other shows. Stan from, uh, from Forest Hills. These guys are very good debaters. David in the Bronx. And I would love to see some people show their stuff when it comes to debating skills. The important thing to remember is you're debating the opposite view from what the other person is saying. Second, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. It's a thought exercise and a a forensics exercise. So go ahead and call in if you want to be a contestant. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is all sort of derived from the segment that Alex Bennett used to do. And in fact, about nine years ago, when uh, Governor Patterson interviewed Alex Bennett on a radio program that I produced... Governor Patterson actually talked with Alex Bennett about this. I was thinking of you because there was a little exercise that I used to hear you do back at WMCA, which I thought was amazing. And it was a kind of king of the hill where you would have a caller 
two callers debate an issue, and then the winner had to stay on and debate the next caller on whatever issue they uh, brought up. So in other words, you might have the same caller, the same person debating both sides of an issue in one of these segments. And I thought it was a great exercise for people because if you're really going to debate people, you have to have some understanding of what your adversary is feeling. People were not just sent from hell to debate right. you because they're inherently right. evil. And uh, now I um, uh, co-opted your uh, your idea and called it Governor's Island when I was on <laughs> WOR. Who would rule over Governor's Island? And So we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven open lines right now if you want to start queuing up. 800-848-9222. I'll pick the first topic, and then after that, you can pick to challenge on whatever debate topic you want. It doesn't have to be related to politics. It could be culture. It could be uh, sports. It could be business. It could be absolutely anything, as long as it's a question that people can debate over. The designated hitting hitter rule or the flat tax, doesn't matter. Um, Trump versus Biden, whatever, doesn't matter, anything. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up as uh, our contestants start queuing up. Very excited about today's show. Joseph Selby is going to be here. Joseph Selby is an expert in the field of meditation. And if you've ever had questions about meditation and how to meditate, listen to my conversation with Joseph Selby. Also, there's always been... I don't know, a little bit of a conflict between people that are very devoted adherents to faith and very devoted adherents to science. Joseph Selby is of the belief that, and I am of a similar belief, that these two beliefs are not incompatible, that you can be a man of God or woman of God and a person of science. And I'm really looking forward to kind of talking with some of those issues about about God, about meditation, about science with him. That's coming up in our second hour. In our third hour, we're going to talk with Michael Harrison, the publisher of Talkers Magazine. He's actually a member of the rock group Gun Hill Road, and he's got a new song out, if you can believe that. So we'll talk a little bit about radio, we'll talk a little bit about music, a bunch of things. And then in, uh, in our last hour, we're going to talk with a woman who thinks the sexual revolution was a mistake for women. So we're going to get into that with Louise Perry, who's joining us live from across the pond. Meantime, it is time for you to be heard on a debate subject. First round of my choosing, subsequent rounds of your choosing, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello first to Josh in Brooklyn. Hello, Josh. Yeah, hey, how are you doing? I'm, I actually love your show. Oh well, there's no accounting for taste. You've already got me. You've already got me in your corner, uh, Josh. I can't speak for Matt and uh, and Kenneth. And you're going to be uh, your adversary for this round is John in Freehold. Hello there, John. Hey, what's up? I'm a master debater. <laughs> I bet you are, John. I bet you are. All right. <laughs> our first uh, issue is going to be. Um, our first issue is going to be whether or not. The judge in the Trump case was right to appoint a special master to review the materials taken at, from Mar-a-Lago. John and Freehold, uh, you will argue that it was appropriate for a special master to be appointed. And Josh in Brooklyn, you will argue that it was not appropriate for a special master to be appointed. 
John, uh, go ahead. Tell me why it was the right move for a special master to be appointed. Um, it was the right move because they took a lot of his personal information, and it, it, everyone knows that it, it, the whole thing is one-sided. There, um, they're trying to get Trump, and he needs to have a fair hearing. And obviously, it would be fair for someone to go through the papers who isn't biased against him and uh, just see what's a. Uh, you know, what's privileged information, what's not, what's declassified, what's not, what can go back to him. I don't think it should be left to one party to decide, um, you know, what information they could leak out. And Josh, explain to John why he's wrong. Um, John, it's a fabulous point where you said, but we it's unprecedented to have a – to question the judicial committee of United States government. The judge is allowed to decide – to be able to investigate something, and we do not question that authority. The second we start questioning that authority, then what happens is we, we there is no standards anymore, so we don't believe anything anymore. We can't allow that to open, even though you believe currently in this scenario, which is a very high-profile profile case, but we can't allow that because we're setting standards, then the future, it's just going to keep pushing and pushing. Like expression of baseball, you, you let the guy take, off, take the lead, he's going to steal second. We can't allow that. Al, I mean, excuse me, uh, John, why, why is that inaccurate, what he said? Um, because if you don't stand up for something, then that, that's how tyrants and dictators are born. All right, and we'll give you the last word there, Josh. Um, I tell you, to, to start talking like that, which, which, in, which you, might, you may feel that way, but you cannot refer to something which is a separate branch of government as tyranny because it is the constitution the constitution has give, given the, the judicial committee that that power to be able to um, decide exactly what they feel is correct in that scenario there's no such thing as a third party coming and, and deciding if that's right or wrong that is wrong all right this was uh, this is- was well done i think by both of you uh, matt blaze what do you think josh josh uh, kenneth yeah. what do you think yay Josh. He up, but two out of three say Josh. All right. Josh, you will stick around for round two. John, thank you for playing our game. And let us say hello to, and if you want to be a contestant, 800 848 9222. That's 800 848 9222. Let us say hello to Al in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Yeah, hello, Frank. Uh, my question that I wanted to present was I, uh, I believe that the United States Supreme Court. Uh, the number should stay as nine justices. Okay, and go ahead and explain why. The reason is because uh, earlier in the term of this uh, current president, there was talk that they wanted to add to the court, and uh, there was it was unpopular with the uh, general public. Uh, some people uh, might have liked it, but I think overall people didn't want it changed. Back in uh, FDR, when he was president, uh, he in his three and a half terms, his, uh, you know, his long, you know, he was the longest serving president. He wanted to pack the court because at the time he was fighting with Congress, and there was a public outcry also not to do it. So he backed off. So I think uh, it should stay the way it is. That's the way it's always been in modern times. And to keep the court number at nine is a positive thing. All right, and uh, Josh, what is your rebuttal? I'm sorry. I got cut off a little bit. I'm sorry about that. I just missed the question. I'm sorry. Uh, so uh, the question is whether or not 
um, the Supreme Court, the number of justices on the U.S. Supreme Court should remain fixed at nine. Al says it should remain at nine, and you will take an opposite view. Um, so I'll tell you, um, there, I, I hadn't seen in the Constitution exactly that it says it's, there's a fixed number. So if there's, so the Constitution allows the, the people, it's a people's country. If the people feel the people's representative, they voted people in office, so they are representing the people. If they feel there's a need in that scenario to pack, to pack the courts, in, to quote, then, then that's what the people want. That's 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 the, that's the decision. The same way the juries are allowed to decide if someone's guilty or, or not, even though they have no legal background, is because it's the people's decision. All right, and uh, Al, what is your retort? Well, just the, uh, the the late Justice Ginsburg, who served on the court, uh, she believed, uh, you know, she was uh, admired by. Uh, many people in the general public, uh, and she thought as a person who served on the court for almost 30 years that it also should stay the way it is. If if you don't like something, it doesn't mean you can automatically change it. So to keep the court at nine is positive, and I believe it should stay that way. Uh, that's the way it was designed. Uh, we've had that for a long time in modern times, and that's my opinion on that. All right, Josh, we'll give you the last word. Um, I respect Justice Ginsburg to the highest regards, but like I've said, that it's his personal opinion is not is we're, we're talking about a country of the people. If they voted in people to represent them, they are representing the people, and if they made that decision, then there's then it's not negotiable what a person believes in. Then if you have a person believe them, vote otherwise. All right, uh, Matt Blaze, what do you think? Once again, I go with Josh. You go with Josh, Kenneth. I'm going to take Al on this one. You know, I actually am going to go with Al as well. I think Josh did well, especially given the fact that he didn't get to choose the topic and Al got to choose his position. I think Josh did well, but I think uh, Al, uh, in my view, wins this round. I'm going to give that one to uh, to Al. Al graduates to our next round. Thank you, Josh, for playing our game. 800-848-9222 if you think you have what it takes to be on the other side of Governor's Island. Eight, does, you pick the topic and then you debate who the champion for the round is, and they will have to take the opposite point of view. If you win, if you're the last man standing, the king of the hill, the head of uh, Governor's Island, then you will not only get a complimentary piece of Other Side of Midnight merchandise, but you'll have the opportunity three weeks from now to join me in studio for a full hour. If you want, you don't have to. 800-848-9222. Let us say hello to uh, Mark in Rockland. Mark, uh, what topic will you be challenging Al on? Abortion. Okay. What, what, what is your view? I am anti-abortion. All right. Explain to us why abortion should be illegal. Go ahead. I believe abortion should be illegal because I believe that the human life is sacred and just like it is common knowledge and common sense that murder is prohibited. So although we do respect women's rights and health, um, I don't believe that overrides the, the sacredness of the human life. While we could debate at what point that does start, I believe for an overall general view, uh, that should be prohibited as murder is prohibited. Al, why is Mark wrong? Mark is wrong because we live in a country where there should always be a separation of church and state. 
1973 decision, which was a seven uh, a seven to two decision. Uh, Blackman, the uh, associate justice at the time, he wrote the uh, decision to uh, make uh, a legalized abortion the law of the land. Uh, women in this country should have a right to do what they want with their bodies. Uh, it's, I believe, a majority of women throughout this country uh, believe in uh, some form of uh, rep- re- reproductive rights, and I think it's an issue that has really uh, hit a nerve with the, uh, you know, with the recent overturn of uh, Roe, uh, at least at a limited version, uh, recently this past summer. So I think uh, it's uh, something that is the law of the land. Uh, it's uh, women should have a right to do what they want uh, when it comes to uh, their re- reproductive rights. Uh, Mark, explain to Al why, why he's wrong. Okay, uh, Al started off saying that there's a separation of church and state. While if we agree to the premise that there is a human life over there, then I don't believe murder is a matter of church and state according to any opinion. And if you would like to debate why there's human life there or if there isn't, that's a separate debate. But, I mean, again, if we agree that there is human life over there, I don't believe in any opinion that anything should take precedence over human life. And just as everybody understands the government can prosecute somebody for murder, I believe it fits into the same context. Al, we'll give you the last word. Yeah, you know, it's just women in this country, uh, again, should have a right to do what they want with their their bodies. Uh, We've seen demonstrations throughout the summer, uh, you know, that this uh, this, uh, decision of 1973 should not be overturned. It should stand. It's going to bring women to the polls this November to even give the Democrats a chance to hold on to the House and the Senate where that wasn't even even in play prior to uh, this right. decision. Okay, I think this was a good round. Matt Blaze, what do you think? This one I go with Al. Uh, Kenneth? I'm going to have to go with Al, too. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think Mark did well, but I'm going with Al, too. Al knows this game. 800-848-9222. If you think you can take on Al in a topic of your choice, give us a call right now. 800-848-9222. We'll, uh, hey, Al, hang on. Uh, we're gonna, we have to take a quick break, and then we'll continue and see how well you can, you can hang on. And uh, if you want to take on the champion, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue on The Other Side of Governor's Island straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. So MCs should call me sire. To find my kingdom, you must choose fire. I won't stop rock until I retire. Now we rock the party. It's your correct. All cuts are on time. This is Run DMC, who um, is uh, not only a very talented musician, but uh, quite a nice guy, I must say. Uh, It's a great group, but the actual person, a very nice guy as well. All right, uh, if you are just tuning in, uh, we are in the midst of our second edition of The Other Side of Governor's Island, where we are giving people an opportunity to debate our incumbent champion, 
Al on any subject you want, uh, and uh, you are going to be able to pick your topic and then take on Al in a battle of wits, and he's going to have to take the opposite point of view, irrespective of what he believes. Here was Governor Patterson uh, talking about the game as it was originally conceived by Alex Bennett. I was thinking of you because there was a little exercise that I used to hear you do back at WMCA, which I thought was amazing. And it was a kind of king of the hill where you would have a caller, two callers debate an issue, and then the winner had to stay on and debate the next caller on whatever issue they uh, brought up. So in other words, you might have the same caller, the same person debating both sides of an issue in one of these segments. And I thought it was a great exercise for people because if you're really going to debate people, you have to have some understanding of what your adversary is feeling. People were not just sent from hell to debate right. you because they're inherently right. evil. And uh, now I um, uh, co-opted your, uh, your idea and called it Governor's Island when I was on <laughs> WOR. Who would rule over Governor's Island? And, and here we are, bringing it back. 800-848-9222. Al has won a couple of rounds so far. Uh, Dave in Comac, a topic, please. Uh, I'm, a, I'm against congestion pricing. Okay, tell us why. Well, because it's just going to cause uh, traffic uh, tie-ups. And uh, it, the, the MTA uh, can't balance the budget as of... Uh, uh, up to this date, and what makes you think by giving them more money that they're going to do anything different than what they were doing previous to this? Uh, and uh, the other words, they're just going to raise fares anyway, and there's no police uh, in the overnight hours or hardly any police, if any, on the platforms. They basically have done nothing. You can't use the bathrooms in the overnight from Penn Station when you're coming home from the city back to Long Island. Uh, and there's no way to sit down because they closed the waiting area, and they're not going to do anything different. They're just looking to rip off the public, and this is basically just a handout I call corporate welfare to the MTA. Al, explain to us why we need congestion pricing. You know, we need congestion pricing, the state, MTA and all, is because uh, they lost so many, so much money uh, prior, you know, with the pandemic and all. And they have to make up that uh, shortfall. So I believe you need it to uh, continue to run the uh, municipality uh, in a, because you lost so much money during the uh, pandemic. And uh, the city is running uh, in the red. And that's why the state and the city would need the, uh, the monies from uh, congestion pricing. Dave. They're already getting a bailout from the federal government, Joe Biden. Ow. And they've done nothing. They've done nothing to prove anything. They haven't put any cops on the platforms. They, they haven't added any trains during rush hour. People are still on top of each other during the pandemic. And I know that firsthand because when I had to go into the city uh, uh, to go into the uh, small claims court in downtown Manhattan, right? That uh, they it's everybody on top of each other even during the pandemic. It's Ow. nonsense. Al, what do you think? Yeah, even with uh, uh, you know the majority leader Schumer bringing home the uh, you know the trying to bail out the MTA and the state with the problems they've had, it's still not enough. Uh, they're running on a shortfall, and uh, this is just the way it is. And uh, that's why they have to do what they have to do with the congestion pricing. All right, Matt, Matt Blaze, what do you think? 
With Ed? Got to go with Al. You got to you got to go with Al. Kenneth, what do you think? I'm going with Al as well. You know, I would have gone with Dave in that round, but well, you know, majority rules. Al uh, graduates to the next round, so be it. Uh, and let us say hello to LQ in the Bronx. LQ, topic, please. LQ, uh, go ahead. Topic, please. Go ahead. Um, the this situation with uh, police officers. Uh, 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 the when they get into altercations and so forth, um, um, shouldn't they have? If, uh, they shouldn't have the, the um, well, the if if one has a right to to uh, clock a female and uh, uh, that sort of thing, uh, and they you know really are not really a, uh, arrested and, and supported, then wouldn't every officer have that same right if he's He's stopping a altercation. So, uh, LQ, I'm not clear on what position what what position you're advocating for. Are you saying police officers should be able to slap uh, people that push them, or should not? Um, well, if one does and they have a right, then every other everyone should. All right. So, I'm still not clear on what position you're advocating for, but I'll let Alan Yonkers respond. Yeah, I wasn't like that clear myself. Is he a proponent of the the the, uh, the woman interfering in the police, or is he an opponent? Yeah, I, I, I wasn't I, that clear. Yeah, LQ, I got to be honest. I uh, I'm lost too. So I think we're going to award this round by default to Al because if we're not really clear what your position is, how do we debate that? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Donovan calling all the way from Vancouver. Donovan, topic please. I would like to argue that syndication in morning radio broadcasting uh, should not be allowed in smaller markets. All right, go ahead. The reason I argue that is the morning time is a time when people need local live entertainment, especially in a smaller town. Nobody really cares what's going on in a bigger city like New York. They want to be addressed by their local news, given local content, understand what's going on with the school closings, if there's a snowstorm go on, going on with local politics, and adding syndicated program really takes away from that, not to mention takes jobs away from local people. All right, Al, uh, why is he wrong? Why should syndicated programming be permitted in the morning hours? Uh, you know, I just believe you. Ha- it's just the, the way it should be. I mean, it's uh, it kind of got me on that one, you know. All right, you're throwing in the towel there, Al. So I think that's uh, Donovan's round. Donovan wins on the syndicated uh, question. I mean, uh, what I would have said, Al, is that, um, you know, I like a live and local morning show. But what I would have said, Al, is, you know, that uh, if a radio station has the opportunity to carry a great syndicated morning show like Howard Stern or Imus or something along those lines, why shouldn't they be able to carry it? I mean, why shouldn't the listeners in that community have the right to that thing? But that's why I'm not a contestant. I'm just a moderator. All right, 800-848-9222, open lines if you think you have what it takes to battle Donovan. Hats off to Al. He won one, two, three, four rounds. Four rounds. So uh, let's see how well Donovan's able to do here. Uh, Fugazi Tom in the Bronx. Topic, please. Um, gun ownership. All right, what's your position? I'm against it. All right. You think guns should be prohibited? Prohibited, yeah. Okay. For private Tell ownership. us why. Tell us why. 
because, you know, guns by itself give people a false sense of security. You know, people might act too fast. And I don't believe the system will be fair about who will be allowed to own guns. I don't think it'll be fair. You know what I'm saying? And we're only killing ourselves with guns right now. We don't only want, we're killing ourselves. We have no need to carry guns personally. All right, Donovan, we'll let you retort as to why gun ownership should not be made illegal. We are in a time of significant lawlessness, lawlessness in many parts of the world, many parts of the country, and the gun provides that sense of protection, that sense of security, uh, that ability to strike back when you're feeling in a, a position of being threatened. It basically gives you the upper hand, and if somebody's trying to attack you, trying to attack your family, that gun is that peace of mind. All right, Fugazi Tom, why is Donovan incorrect? Okay, yeah, well, the the law will need to be changed about that gun violence because if that's the, if that's the stance you're taking, then like I said, people were getting killed for nothing. What are we going to have? Stand, uh, stand downs in the street or showdowns like they did in the cowboy days? You know, you only may if we nobody has guns, then nobody can be affected with it. I don't see how how that's that's even an issue. But we need guns to protect ourselves in, in this country, so that's why we don't need them because we only killing ourselves. All right, Donovan, we'll give you the last word. We need that sense of security, that sense of protection. Uh, it's difficult for us to even trust the police and know that they'll be around when we need them. So having that upper hand really allows us to be, you know fight the best we can and protect ourselves and our families. All right. Uh, Matt Blaze, what do you think? I'm going with Fugazi Tom. You're going with Fugazi Tom. Uh, but Kenneth, what do you think? I think Fugazi Tom is now taking the crown. Y- you're kidding. I would have gone with Donovan on that. I'm again in the minority, but uh, Donovan, well done. But apparently not not good enough to beat Fugazi Tom. So who knows? Maybe uh, we'll see uh, the actual Tom from the Bronx uh, call in. But until then, if you want to call in, by the way, one two three four five six open lines, 800-848-9222. Larry in Brooklyn, topic please. Okay, I believe that the Times in New York call for vigilante justice in the streets. All right, and so go ahead. Explain what your position is and why. Okay, Okay, my position is that there is currently a political standoff between the police and the government where the police are not permitted to function the way they normally do, and as a result, criminals are taking advantage not only of the laws but of the um, of the uh, uh, the crippling of the police uh, of the police force. Therefore, citizens are becoming victims one after the other in, in rapid succession. And the only thing that's going to stop this crime wave, and that's what it is, a wave, is if citizens start taking matters into their own hands. Fugazi Tom, explain to Larry why he's wrong. Because you just talking about a race war. That's all. Citizens taking it into their old hands. So what's the, what's the line on that? When when is it right and when is it wrong? When is a citizen justified for taking things in his own hands? What is it that's going to make him just shoot somebody dead? And all right, be justified? Larry? Larry. Well, I'm not necessarily talking about a race war per se, but if that's the way it turns out. 
then that's the way it happens. In other words, if the perpetrators are one race and the vigilantes are another race, then that's the way it has to play out. Not that, not that we're seeking that. Um, but the reason that it's, uh, that, it, that, it's, that it's right is because people are, are being uh, intimidated and scared, and um, it has to play out that way. We recently saw, for example, in the Bronx, two teenagers um, chasing somebody in the street with gun- chasing a lady uh, with guns and taking her necklace. Two teenagers with a gun. Now, if somebody was following those teenagers, the minute they pulled that gun out, it would be legal to take them out, both of them, and because they're working in concert. And that would make it right and legal. That would make it legal, and it would also make it right. Fugazi Tom. Look, a race war can never be right. That is ridiculous. You are, you want to see people be killed. That's crazy. You want people to take the law into their own hands, okay? So anybody make a false I mean, you're just giving people the right to kill each other, to murder each other, and come up with an excuse. Condoning a race war is never right. That's ridiculous, man. Uh, all right. And, and- okay, Matt Blaze, who, who, who do you think? Once again. Fugazi Tom. Uh, Kenneth. You got to go with Fugazi. Got to go with Fugazi Tom. I'm with you guys on that one. Well done, Larry. 800-848-9222. We'll do two more rounds. We'll see how this goes. Sean is in Brooklyn. Sean, uh, what is your position and why? Good morning, sir. Morning. I want to thank you for letting America speak their mind. We need more radio stations like you. Thank you. Well, uh, go ahead. What's your topic? And make your case. I I worked in the courts for over 20 years. And this is a message for America, okay? You're on your own, okay? The Democrat Party has been doing this for over 20 years, maybe longer. And, and remember, started... Sean, you're picking a specific issue and you're going to advocate. I'm getting to it. Okay. I'm getting it's to it. It's only a four-hour show, keep in mind. Law schools, they started there. Columbia, it, no matter where the school is in the United States, they wanted to get on the inside. These attorneys, they've taken over the criminal justice system and to get everybody released. That's what they're doing. You're on your own because uh, 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 don't worry, the cops aren't coming. And even when you call them, then I'm never going to get there. So, Sean, okay? your the position lady, is the what? Memphis, the lady in Memphis, that guy was already committing crimes 20-something years ago. Right, Sean, them. thank you. Jeez. Thank you, Sean. I, I tried. I tried. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Now, the way this works is this. I'm in favor of keeping the Electoral College the way it is because smaller states need a say in the process. Okay. That's, that's – uh, <laughs> there you go. Position clearly stated and reason as to support of the position. I'm in favor of abolishing the designated hitter because it makes baseball more exciting and the games of the DH are too long. See? Got it? Okay. I I think uh, advertising on children's programming should be abolished because children's brains aren't developed enough to uh, separate corporate messaging from reality. Okay. You know, you see, that's how it is. I don't need a whole history on the criminal justice system. Uh, so I think uh, Fugazi Tom wins that round by default. Uh, all right, Lynn in Manhattan. Lynn, topic, please. Reparations, and I am for them. Okay, explain why. I'm going to make that long story short. And by the way, I'm not afraid of losing. I'll be Tom no matter what uh, my opponent says. 
But I just want to say that as far as I'm concerned, from 1619 to 1865, many uh, Africans in this country uh, experienced poverty and were unable to help their descendants out. And what's unfortunate is that many people today are still, many descendants of U.S. slaves are still giving their kids neglect today. They're not helping them get houses, not helping them get cars, et cetera, et cetera. And I submit that if we were to help these individuals uh, overcome poverty, become financially stable, and build intergenerational wealth, uh, this would create a lot of uh, uh, goodwill in the country, would create a lot of patriotism in this country, and eliminate a lot of animosity that currently exists in the U.S. All right. Uh, Fugazi, Tom, explain why <laughs> reparations is wrong. Well, I, um, I'm really for reparations. No, no, I, no, I no. no. No, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. I'm sort of saying why it's wrong. Because um, that period is over now. You know what I'm saying? Understand we did wrong, but we have righted the wrong at least 90% of the way. You understand? We they do. Uh, who's being affected is not being affected no more by that. Uh, and we've made it so everybody can work and, and 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 take part in the American way. So nobody is has to be left out. But I think reparations is probably a thing of the past. All right, uh, Lynn, we'll go ahead and give you the last word. Okay, all I can say is this. Thank you for giving me the last word. Uh, I want to say this. A lot of people seem to think that if people of today want reparations, they want uh, money for nothing. And nobody wants money for nothing. I think we really want to receive just some type of compensation for the wealth that was extracted from us at the tip of a gun, knife, and whip. And to make a long story short, if we're able – you know, they say uh, poverty is the mother of all crime. If we can help these people become financially stable, I submit that we'll have safer streets and we'll have less crime in our society and a more peaceful America. All right. Uh, Matt Blaze. Fugazi Tom. Uh, Kenneth. Fugazi stays on the throne. I don't know how you guys pick Fugazi Tom there when he basically says that he doesn't even believe what he's saying, but so be it. But he made a good argument. Uh, okay. All right. All right. So Lynn is, <laughs> Lynn is gone. Fugazi Tom remains. I hope he's not paying you or something because uh, if there's any corruption in a contest of, of the impeccable integrity like this one, we're going to have a problem. All right. Kevin in Howard Beach, uh, what is your position? going to be uh, bail reform. Okay. For it, against it, and why? Oh, I'm against it. And explain why. Okay. So, I mean, I think it's pretty self-evident over the last uh, year and uh, 16 months that they brought the bail reform in as a way to appease uh, what was happening at the time, whether it was Black Lives Matter or a very liberal uh, president that came on board. And I think we've seen the fruits of what that's born. I mean, guys are just knocking people out, being locked up 15, 20, 30, 40 times, and they're being released back onto the streets. Unfortunately, uh, the average citizen is suffering because of it. I mean, maybe they, maybe they could tweak the bail uh, system, but at the same time, when you're going to release someone that's been locked up 40 times or 100 times for shoplifting, who is that benefiting? All right. Fugazi Tom, uh, explain to Kevin why he's wrong and why bail reform is the right thing to do. Okay. For every action, there's a reason. Bail reform became an issue because it was being being, uh, used uh, not fairly. It wasn't. It was... It was not fair. It was racist. Black people were getting hit with bills that they know they couldn't pay for for a crime they commit. 
And so uh, it has to be adjusted some way. I'm not saying this way, but it was illegal. It was not fair. All right. uh, We'll give you the last word there, Kevin. Okay. Well, you know what? There's always some some people that fall through the cracks. But I think that if you look at uh, what's happened over the last 18 months, it's gone. The pendulum has swung in such a, 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 a an opposite direction. And uh, I think just the average New Yorker would say something's got to be done here. And I think what happened was the Democrats voted for the bail reform because it was as a part of uh, uh, Cuomo's budget. And that's what they're standing on. But I think that if there was something in the budget that uh, would have been uh, in the opposite direction, they would have did a line item veto or something to that effect. We're suffering, and I think it needs to change. All right, uh, Matt Blaze. I'm going with Kevin. Uh, Kenneth. I'm going to go with Fugazi. For going with Fugazi. I am going with uh, Kenneth on this one, too. I think uh, I li- I, Fugazi performed admirably, but I, I got to go with uh, with Kevin, and uh, I think we're going to, you know, I hate to. Are give- you going with me, then? You're going with Kevin. Yeah. You said Kenneth. Kevin, right. Yeah, I'm going with Kevin. Sorry. Yeah, Fugazi Tom is uh, eliminated. I feel like Kevin shouldn't just be the champion for winning one round, though. we got to allow him to at least take on one more caller uh, to really be the, the king of the hill for this week. Let's say hello to Alan in Rockaway. Alan, what is your position and why? Uh, in terms of bail reform? No, no. You pick a new topic. What is it? Uh, I think that the best thing to reduce crime is to enact a a law which makes it almost impossible to get a gun. Well, we already did that topic, so I'm eliminating that, Alan. So, uh, John in Westchester, topic, please. Yeah, uh, it's about the forgiveness of student debt. I'm opposed to the way the president's proposing it, but I think it's a good idea in general. I'll explain. I think we should uh, allow uh, the Republicans are attacking this as being a budget breaker and because it's just buying votes of young people. And I kind of agree with that. So what I would propose is because we have a shortage of teachers and a shortage of healthcare workers, tell people who are graduating that if they work in one of those jobs for a year, every month they work will forgive $800 of your student debt, which will come out to the $10,000. And in the meantime, we will be helping alleviate problems because we have these shortages for teachers that they're going crazy trying to fill. And we have shortages of healthcare workers and people are in need of them. So rather than just throwing money at, at kids for nothing and not have them earn the, the money back, and plus they'd be getting the salary of a teacher or a teacher's aide or a healthcare worker would get anyway, but will forgive $800 a month, and in that way, they're earning it, and it's good citizenship for them to have the experience. All right, Kevin, uh, John thinks we need loan forgiveness for teachers and healthcare workers. He explained why. Why is he wrong? Okay, so um, I'm kind of torn on this because I have a daughter that has a loan, but um, I I paid when, when my daughter went to uh, – college. I made a deal with her. And I said, I will cover most of your uh, student uh, loan, but you have to borrow $5,000 a year because you have to have skin in the game. I'll take care of everything else. But when this comes due, that's on you. 
So I, I don't know, 100000 or whatever I paid. And uh, that's what she's in for. She's in for 20000 25000 whatever it is with the, uh, with the uh, interest. I think that you don't go out and buy something, and then later on you have buyer's remorse and you want to uh, have someone else pay for it. John, so, very brief retort. Um, very brief retort, John. Yeah, my friends, a lot of them had to work their way through college, had debt after they left, which they had to pay. And I don't see how, and I had to work, and my parents paid most of it. And I don't see why anybody should get a free ride, and this would be better for the society in general. We'd be solving a shortage problem, and we'd be helping them with their debt. All right, Matt Blaze. I got to go with Kevin. Uh, Kenneth. Kevin. Kevin, all right. I had two out of three. I was actually leaning towards uh, John, but I think uh, I'm in the minority once again. Uh, once again, Kevin in Howard Beach is our winner. He's our king of the hill for this week. Kevin, uh, stay on the line. Give Kenneth your information, and uh, not only will we send you a prize of some sort, but we'll have you in studio in three weeks for a, a whole hour of debating, maybe even a whole a whole day. Uh, let's give Kevin a round of applause if we can. Uh, congratulations there, uh, Kevin. Well done. Well done. Absolutely well done. And uh, I think everybody's kind of grasping the concept. So congratulations, Kevin. Well done. All right. Uh, we'll get into some other subjects in just a bit. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. For the rest of the program, uh, next hour, Joseph Selby will be here. He is an interesting guy. Um, he is a dedicated meditator for over 40 years, and he's known for creating a bridge between the modern discoveries of science and the ancient knowledge of mystics. So we're going to discuss uh, some of what we're learning about the brain and some of the current scientific understanding of the brain's influence on our thoughts and behaviors. Maybe even get a few tips on how to meditate. We'll get into that. And then in our uh, third hour, we're going to talk with uh, Michael Harrison. He's the publisher of Talkers Magazine. But we're not just going to talk about talk radio. He's got a new song out with Gun Hill Road. Some of you might remember Gun Hill Road from the 1970s, their hit song, Back When My Hair Was Short. Michael Harrison is actually now a member of Gun Hill Road. He's going to join us and uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, this song and 
the state of talk radio and the state of politics, a bunch of things. And then in our final hour, Louise Perry will join us from across the pond to tell us why the sexual revolution may have been a mistake for women. All that and a bunch of other fun subjects we're going to get into throughout the course of the next three hours. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. to this hour, and we are going to try to hit upon as many topics as we can before Joseph Selby gets here, uh, But uh, and a little bit later on, we're going to talk with Michael Harrison. We've got a lot of other stuff going on as well. Why don't we break out the good old-fashioned wheel of topics and give it a spin, and I will choose from, let me see here, let me pull out my topic list. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seven, eighteen, 41 different possible topics. Let us spin the wheel and see where it lands. Oh, this is rich. Have you heard about this? Vice President Kamala Harris, she did an interview for Labor Day with a progressive magazine, The Nation. Now, The Nation has a lot of content in there that I actually really like. My my intellectual hero when it came to Russia, Stephen Cohen, was a contributing editor to The Nation, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, who's been a guest on this show. She's, I believe, the the editor-in-chief of The Nation. They do a lot of great work even though it's considered generally a progressive magazine. But it's a magazine that a lot of progressive politicians choose to do interviews with in order to pander and to placate different things. Well, Vice President Kamala Harris claimed in an interview with The Nation that she she tried grapes for the first time in her 20s because, quote, She would never cross a picket line. Now, this is what this is the quote. This sounds quaint, and I'm so and so I'm reluctant to say it, but you know, I didn't eat a grape until I was in my 20s. Now, even if the dates matched up, I wouldn't believe this, but she's lying. She's absolutely lying. Now, again, is it the biggest deal in the world that she's lying about when she ate grapes? No. Could there be a kernel of truth or a seed of truth, since we're talking grapes, in what she's saying? Maybe. But eating table grapes, some of you may know this if if you follow the organized labor movement. Eating table grapes was shunned by labor activists from the time that Kamala Harris was 19 to the time that she was 36 because there were these 
three major grape boycotts spearheaded by Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers. They didn't want people getting grapes. And those boycotts ended when she was 36 years old. So if she didn't need to grape for the first time until her 20s, she would have she would have crossed a picket line by ordering these grapes. Now, one of these incidents, it's no big deal. But unfortunately, um, this is now a pattern for Vice President Harris. The United Farm Workers launched their third and longest grape boycott in June of 1984, just over four months before Harris's 20th birthday, and it lasted until the year 2000 when Harris was 36 years old. So uh, the New York Post has reported this, and they've reached out to Kamala Harris's office for comment, and at the time that the Post reported on this, it was not printed. But this is not the first time that she's raised eyebrows by, I want to say, making up things to go along with whatever audience she's speaking to. Um, In 2019, she did a radio interview about smoking pot in college while listening to Tupac and Snoop Dogg. Now, she graduated from college in 1986. Tupac didn't even release his first album until 1991. Snoop Dogg didn't release his first album until 1993. So she was not smoking pot in college while listening to Snoop Dogg and Tupac. And uh, then she told this story, which sounds to me ridiculous. You, Some of you may remember it, where she said that she was a child attending a protest and she memorably demanded freedom. And it just is very striking that that's almost the same story that Martin Luther King Jr. told in the 1960s. And it strikes me as Kamala Harris. And look, a lot of politicians have a tendency to exaggerate, to make up things. Eric Adams does it. Joe Biden does it. Donald Trump does it. A lot of politicians do this. I guess, you know, you get wrapped up in the moment. You really dig the room in front of you. You want to tell some sort of story that connects you with the audience. But I guess what's troubling is how often Kamala Harris seems to have no trouble doing this. You would think after the campaign, she would learn and she would say, all right, let me be careful before I insert myself into these stories. But either she didn't have a grape until she was 36 or she crossed a picket line. And I'm not sure, or she lied about both of those things. I bet you she was eating grapes the whole time. That's my bet. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let us spin the wheel. Oh, this is interesting. We get to go to the United Kingdom a little early. Boris Johnson is no longer the prime minister of the United Kingdom. I uh, am somebody that liked Boris Johnson, not so much for his policies, but for 
um, his his personality. I, I kind of dug his whole personality. Well, Boris Johnson is out, and the new uh, prime minister of the UK, the third female prime minister that we have, is Liz Truss, and uh, we'll we'll come back to her on another time. But I was saying to my wife as we were driving either to or back from Atlantic City on uh, Sunday, I was saying, well, what do you think Boris Johnson's going to do now? The guy is very bright, and uh, the guy has a lot of name recognition. The guy has a lot to offer. What do you think he's going to do? He's sort of disgraced uh, because he lied about these parties that they were having during the COVID lockdown. What's he going to do? And she said, well, I I mean, I feel like he's got money. So maybe he doesn't necessarily need to do anything. Well, turns out she's not necessarily wrong. And a couple of things. So while his three-year term as prime minister of the UK is over, he is still going to be a member of the House of Commons. So he's still going to be in Parliament. He probably will not be in the cabinet, but he still is going to remain as the minister, the MP for Uxbridge and South Ruslip and has not indicated any plans to step down. So instead of being in the cabinet or the prime minister, he's just going to be what they call a backbencher. So um, that means he's going to lose the prime minister salary, which is around 79,000 pounds, but he still gets to earn 84,000 pounds a year for being a member of parliament. Now, Here's what I did not know. I had to do a little research on this. This is where I think my wife was was right. Before becoming prime minister, he was earning as much as 800,000 pounds a year from other ventures. He had to stop this when he became prime minister or, or he chose to stop it. Wow. But that included a $275,000 a year, um, excuse me, not dollar, pounds, 275,000 pound a year column in the Daily Telegraph, which he stepped away from in order to become prime minister. Can you believe that? That that's the kind of money he was earning as a columnist while being a politician? And apparently they are saying that he is likely to earn significant money on the speech circuit, and he could also return to some of his journalistic endeavors. Theresa May, who was another failed UK prime minister, she's estimated to have earned more than two million pounds since leaving office three years ago, including 400,000 pounds for a series of six speeches in the United States last year. Sources have said that Boris Johnson can expect to far exceed this, with one agent suggesting that he could expect to fetch between 100,000 pounds and 250,000 pounds per speech for high-profile corporate appearances. His combination of Heft and humor make him box office, putting his earning potential at around a couple of million a year. Now, I want you to think about this, and I've been thinking about it a great deal since I read that article about 24 hours ago. Boris Johnson is, by all accounts, a failed prime minister, right? Um, He is guilty of hypocrisy. He bungled various aspects of the lockdown I would argue to say that the U.K. is not necessarily better off today because of Boris Johnson. And he's gone because of a scandal, right? He's gone because of this scandal about having parties and then lying about it. 
he's not gone because he chose to leave when the time was right or to spend more time with his family. He doesn't want to spend more time with his family. He wants to spend less time with his family. He wants to be the leader of a major Western nation. That's what he'd like to be doing. And he's gone because of a scandal. And yet, if these estimates are correct, because he's got wit and name recognition and because, you know, he had a high-profile job, He's going to get to stay in politics, in the government, as part of the parliament, and earn upwards of two million pounds a year through journalism and through giving speeches. And look, I guess what that says is if you're going to fail, fail big, fail in spectacular fashion. Fail so that everyone knows about it. And if you have a sense of humor and you have name recognition, you're always going to be able to find a way to make money. I think that's the lesson here. Uh, Boris Johnson, by the way, uh, this was a little bit of his farewell speech after he gave his resignation to the Queen in Scotland. This is part of what he said. Well, this is this is it, folks. Thank you, everybody, for coming out so early this morning. In only a couple of hours, I will be in Balmoral to see Her Majesty the Queen. And the torch will finally be passed to a new Conservative leader. The baton will be handed over in what has unexpectedly turned out to be a relay race. They changed the rules halfway through, but never mind that now. (laughs) What does that mean? How did they change the rules halfway through? What does that mean? It unexpectedly became a relay race. He's gone for two reasons. One is he's lost the confidence of his own party. The conservative party doesn't want him as their leader anymore. And two, because he lied about having these parties during uh, COVID. Now, I don't think he should have lost his job for that. I think he made 100 other mistakes, and I just happen to be 100 other things that I disagree with him on. But he did lie. This is a scandal of his own making. And yet he's throwing his shoulders up. Oh, what happened? I don't know what happened. Oh, oh, no. Now, this to me really took the cake. And those of you that are lovers of history will, I think, share my head scratching at this comparison. Let me say that I am now like one of those booster rockets that has fulfilled its function and I will now be gently re-entering the atmosphere and splashing down invisibly in some remote and obscure corner of the Pacific. And like Cincinnatus, I am returning to my plough. And I will be offering this government nothing but the most fervent support. Now, comparing himself to Cincinnatus, who, other than maybe Julius Caesar, was probably the most famous military leader and Roman statesman in history is amazing to me because I just told you what Boris Johnson is going to earn. Do you know anything about Cincinnatus? Cincinnatus, and he's a fascinating history, a fascinating historical figure, even based on what we know. And because he lived, I don't know, 2,500 years ago, we don't know much about him. But uh, what we do know is pretty fascinating. And even what we don't know about him, the things that he's come to represent in Roman history are pretty fascinating. Now, this is a guy that became a legendary figure of Roman virtue, particularly civic virtue. 
he was an opponent of the rights of common citizens. And he fell into poverty because of his son's violent opposition to the plebeians, those are the common citizens, their desire for a written code of equally enforced laws was in poverty. And despite his relatively old age, Cincinnatus, he worked his own small farm until an invasion prompted his fellow citizens to call for his leadership. And he came from his plow to assume complete control over the state, but but upon achieving a swift victory in only 16 days, relinquished his power and its prerequisites and returned to his farm. This is not at all like Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus chose to give up power at the height of his popularity. If there's any historical comparison in the Western world to Cincinnatus, it's George Washington. It's not Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson was forced out. He's probably, he was clinging to the furniture as they dragged him out of his office. And he's not going to work and toil in poverty because of some proud civic virtue he has. He's going to make 200,000 pounds of speech. The guy is wealthy and was forced out. I don't get the comparison to Cincinnatus. Unless he thinks they're going to beg him to come back. Three years from now. Who knows? Stranger things have happened. They did the same thing with his hero, uh, Churchill. They did bring uh, Churchill back, right? So uh, who knows? All right, let us spin the wheel one more, at least one more time before we get to Joseph Selby. Ah, this is fun. I'm glad we got we got to this. Uh, by the way, anything you want to comment on that we're covering, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You know what Saturday was? Saturday was National Cinema Day. First, the first National Cinema Day. And you know what a whole bunch of theater chains did? Regal, AMC, Cinemark. They celebrated National Cinema Day by offering $3 tickets at more than 3,000 theaters around the country. And apparently, this discounted ticket promotion turned out to be a hit, a blockbuster hit, if you'll pardon my saying so. These $3 tickets that were offered on on Saturday, they drew 8.1 million moviegoers over the normal, normally very slow Labor Day weekend. That's according to the National Association of Theater Owners. I'm curious if anyone went uh, to the movie theaters. I know Lorraine, who watches our son, she went and she enjoyed a classic. I think they had uh, The Blob, and she went and saw The Blob for $3. That's kind of cool. But this is the first of its kind National Cinema Day. It boosted ticket sales by 9%. Over the previous week at the theaters that participated. And some people saw Top Gun. Some people saw Spider-Man. But um, I think this is really great. I mean, with so many people loving the comforts of home, loving to pause the film when they when they want, um, you know, wanting to be in their own home and watch the film at their own schedule. A lot of people aren't going to the movies. You know, I'll be honest. I love Movies and I love the cinema experience. I have not been to a movie theater 
uh, since December, which is a long time. Other than during the pandemic, I think that's the longest amount of time that I've been to, uh, you know, since going to a, uh, a cinema. But here's a question. Now, think of that uptick in movie population at a time when they're trying to figure out how to get people into theaters. What if they did this once a month, right? Rather than once a year. Why don't they make the first Saturday of every month $3 cinema day? You get people to the theaters. You get people buying the popcorn and the soda, which we all know is overpriced to begin with. You get people buying the candies. You get people seeing the products. And, you know, they always sneak in ads before the films now, not just for trailers that are coming out. If the trailers are good, maybe you get them interested in a future film that's coming out. I would love to see the, um, the, the movie industrial complex adopt this as a monthly holiday, not just an annual one. I don't know what you think. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. My wife and I are possibly going to the movies on Friday. I'll keep you posted on that. So that's going to be big. It's going to be our first trip, as I said, since uh, December. But uh, the pandemic has been brutal for the film industry as lockdowns and fear of COVID spread, um, limited the uh, amount of tickets sold in the last two years. And this year's off to a better start now that this lockdown is largely over, but still not where they were just a few years ago. 800-848-9222. Do we have time to spin the wheel one more time? Let me see. Uh, let me see. No, okay. I don't want to rush through this. This is gonna. This is important. I don't want to rush through it. All right. Joseph Selby joins me next. We're going to talk meditation. We're going to talk the brain, and we're going to talk about the physics of God. Uh, this is kind of a conversation you are not going to want to miss. Joseph Selby joins me straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is a uh, Matt Blaze musical selection, The Sweetest Taboo by Sade. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, just join our Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. And uh, not only is it meant to be a platform for people to talk about this show uh, and the topics that we're covering, including, um, you know, uh, O.B. Murray, who's spinning a tale that the wheel of topics is predetermined. How dare he? How dare he question the integrity of the wheel of topics? Next time he's in studio, I'm going to have him spin the wheel and see where we land. Uh, but we also list all the music after the uh, after the after the show, and you can see what kind of bumper music you like, what you didn't like, and you can comment on it. I have been very eager 
to talk with Joseph Selby for uh, quite some time. He is a best-selling author, a dedicated meditator for about a half century, a yoga teacher. He's a founding member of Ananda, which is a worldwide spiritual movement, and he's done a number of other really interesting things, uh, but we only have a four-hour show. We can't list his entire resume. But his book, The Physics of God, is certainly one that has gotten a lot of people talking, and he's got a website we can learn more about his work uh, called physicsandgod.com. That's physicsandgod.com. Joseph Selby, thanks for joining me on the radio. My pleasure. Joseph, um, how did you get into meditation initially? Uh, Well, when I was in uh, college, uh, University of Colorado, I had a extraordinary hallucinogenic psychedelic experience that was profoundly moving. It brought out the very best in me. I was calm, clear-minded, positive, uh, engaged with people, people engaged with me. And throughout the experience, I really felt a strong sense of presence, presence of spirit. And it was very moving and life-transforming. But I knew even then that 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 was a gift. It wasn't something that hallucinogenic drugs would give me every time I took them. And in fact, I had taken it many times before that without that same experience. And so that really propelled me toward discovering how do I have that experience in my life again or more often? And that drew me almost inexorably to meditation. Now, uh, I have been a fan of Howard Stern for a long time, also been a fan of uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Clint Eastwood, and all three of those men have talked publicly about how they have benefited from transcendental meditation. And I've always sort of been curious about transcendental meditation. I've never really tried it, but I've always been tempted to because of how these three men in very high-pressure jobs have talked about how it's helped them. Transcendental meditation is not necessarily the kind of meditation that you do, is it? No, but uh, there are similarities. uh, And besides transcendental meditation and the meditation I practice, there are scores of others that people practice all over the world. So there isn't one that is the very best or one that, you know, the majority of people use even. What I was drawn to were uh, techniques offered by the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Yogananda is the author of Autobiography of a Yogi. Um, Millions of people literally have read that book, and millions of people have had uh, their life view changed by that book. So the techniques he offered, you start with one called the Hung Saw technique, which is where you watch the breath, and as you watch the breath come in, you mentally say hung, and as you watch the breath go out, you mentally say saw. It's very simple, but it tends to focus the mind, tends to concentrate you. And then he has another technique, Yogananda, that was really central to his whole teaching called Kriya Yoga. And Kriya Yoga is a 
pranayama technique, a breathing exercise that really focuses the mind, really interiorizes the your thoughts and your feelings into a, a nice, calm, centered state. So these are the kind of techniques that, as with the gentleman you mentioned, really allow you to live a busy life, if you so choose, and be centered in it, be, be calm in it. So the, the Hung Sao technique, it's as simple as that. I mentally say Hung as I breathe in and mentally say Sao as I breathe out? Uh, there are more details. That's the, that's the core of it. The, the other central part of it is to begin by just watching the breath in the fact that you're chest is expanding and contracting, your body is moving, and then gradually let your point of concentration come up into the nostrils and feel cool air come in as you inhale, warm air as you exhale. And after, you know, it can take a minute, can take minutes, you eventually bring your point of concentration to the point between the eyebrows. And that is where, uh, according to yogic teachings, that's the seat of concentration in the body. It is where we tend to, you know, kind of frown when we're thinking about something really hard. Uh, It is a natural point of focus for the brain as well. And so that, those are are more of the aspects of the technique that are, uh, that make it easier to do. Uh, so if I'm somebody that wants to uh, ex- learn meditation, whether it be from you or resources that are on your website or through your books or from another source, what's the best first step in beginning the process of uh, practicing meditation? Well, the number one most important first step is to do it. <laughs> to actually just Find a technique. You know, obviously you're listening to me talk and I'm offering that technique. So if this is resonating with you, go to my website, find it on there, read how to do it, and just start doing it. Uh, It's natural to us. People tend to think of meditation as something that you're imposing on yourself. But really meditation just gives you access to the deeper realities within yourself we're so much more than we know and so any meditation technique will give you access to that by slowing down the racing train of thoughts and stilling the body and just those two things even if you don't know a technique even those two things can give you really deep positive harmonious experiences. Sometimes people have them out in nature just naturally. You know, you're sitting on the beach, you're walking in the woods, and everything becomes very calm and still. And in that calmness and stillness, you feel just wonderful. You feel your heart open or at least relax and allow a sense of peacefulness to pervade your awareness. So, Meditation is a, you know, it's like exercise makes you stronger. Meditation makes you, uh, 
more aware of the deeper aspect of who you really are. Hmm. Uh, Very, very interesting uh, talking with Joseph Selby. You've also studied a great deal about the science of the brain, specifically a, uh, an aspect of neuroscience that medical science is just starting to catch up with, and that's neuroplasticity. And there's a couple of great books on neuroplasticity that I've read, and I find it pretty intriguing. But basically, this is a pathway to allow people to rewire their own brains for any purpose that they want. Um, how can people use neuroplasticity to improve certain aspects of their own life? Maybe it's uh, something like uh, being more disciplined when it comes to trying to quit smoking or quit drinking. Maybe it's uh, a reflection of uh, wanting to do something else. How can people use neuroplasticity in their own lives? Well, I think first and foremost, understanding that your brain is highly Changeable. It is highly plastic, and that your brain will wire neural circuits to support anything you do more than four, five, six times. It'll already start wiring circuits to support whatever that behavior is, uh, whatever that train of thought is, whatever that emotional reaction might be. And in fact, that's the story of your brain from when you're born to today is that it has wired circuits for you to support anything and everything you do. The brain is doesn't care. It can be a bad habit or a good habit. The brain will support you in doing it. So the key, I think, to understanding brain plasticity and, and, and encouragement of brain plasticity is to understand that if you embark on something like starting a meditation practice, it doesn't take that long. It takes weeks to months for the brain to rewire to support that meditation practice. And it gets that makes it easier and easier. These circuits fire when certain things are uh, uh, you know, come in and stimulate it. And the firing of that circuit sort of sets in motion uh, whatever that has been wired to support. So in terms of meditation, it will fire and your body will relax more easily. Where to begin a practice, you might be really fidgety and have a great deal of trouble sitting still or staying still for very long. But those circuits will wire And before you know it, you're able to sit quietly without fidgeting for longer and longer periods of time. You're able to concentrate um, in the forebrain, point between the eyebrows, just more naturally. It's as if your neural circuits give you a boost uh, that doesn't, so therefore doesn't require as much willpower, doesn't require thinking through every step of it. And that all just kind of flows for you more easily. So you can apply this to anything. The brain is an obliging servant, whatever you want to do. You mentioned, you know, uh, dealing with smoking or unwanted behaviors. The best way to deal with those, if you're wanting to change, is to create a counterbalancing good habit that would take you away from uh, the habit you're trying to escape more often. 
and increasingly more often until your bad habit becomes something that you know, gets less and less of a hold on you. And this is because as the new neural circuit gains strength, let's say you, you have a better diet regimen, then the other habits you had for eating get triggered less often because your primary circuit is, is kind of commanding all of the attention. And it makes it easier to move away from these. They remain in your brain. Circuits remain in your brain for a very long time. There's that old phrase about, you know, you're, if you've been an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. It means that you have these circuits in your brain, and if you awaken them for, you know, whether you're feeling safe or something and feel like, well, I can have another sip or I can eat this food that's bad for me, it will tend to reawaken that circuit and then you're back in this pattern of behavior you don't want, which is being automatically supported by this circuit in your brain. So the brain is, again, a, a faithful servant. The key with meditation, though, is that it will break through the limits that the brain imposes on us. We've tended to all wire our brains to respond to operating in the world that we're familiar with, the world that uh, we get up in the morning and experience, and we tend to interact with that world all day long until we go to bed. This is just natural. I mean, for most people, you probably think, well, what else, what else would there be? And that's really the problem is that we have, we have wired our brains to such an extent that we don't spontaneously and naturally experience higher aspects of ourselves or subtle realities. And that's where meditation rewires the brain to allow you to have those kind of experiences and break through the limits you've, you've created for yourself in the way you wired your brain. Uh, talking with Joseph Selby, you can check out his website, uh, physicsandgod.com. How did you get into studying that subject, uh, the kind of the science of religiosity or spirituality, and specifically the physics of God? Um, I grew up in a family that, uh, you know, worshipped science rather than religion, really. (laughs) And as I like to joke with people, a dinner table conversation required references. So I grew up very much with... Uh, a mind trained in the kind of rational way of thinking and in the scientific outlook. And when I went off to college, uh, I thoroughly expected to get a degree in science because I liked it and I did well in all the, the subjects surrounding science. But then, you know, my path took me into meditation and into um, this wonderful experience of helping get the Ananda community started helping get the Ananda movement going, and that has become the the heart of my life. But all that while, I never uh, lost interest in science. And one of the aspects that I love about the teachings of Yogananda is that you don't have to give up science 
it's not a belief system. It is a, a, a you know, meditation is scientific in the sense that if you practice it like you're practicing an experiment to see what kind of results you get, you can measure the results by how you experience it. You don't have to believe anything for, for meditation to work. So those two aspects came together, the sort of scientific nature of, of meditation and that approach to spirituality and my long-term interest in science. So for all of the years um, from college onward, I've just stayed on top of various subjects that, that and, and various books and various writers that explored what I think of as the intersections of science and spirituality. And had I not had four kids and you know, started a business in order to afford having four kids, I probably would have written that book, The Physics of God, uh, decades ago. But it only, uh, it only came in the last few years when the kids are grown and gone and I have more of an opportunity to really focus on it. But all that while, all those 40, 50 years, the ideas were always with me and I was always chewing on them and I was always reading other books. So I was like eager, <laughs> eager to put together the two sides of that picture, the science and, uh, and spirituality. One thing you said that I, one thing you wrote that I really enjoy, and I think you're absolutely on the money about this, is that the people that are scientific adherents and happen to be skeptics of religion or uh, overtly hostile to spirituality, they almost have adopted their own religion of scientific materialism. Explain to folks what you mean by that. Well, scientific materialism is a, a sort of philosophic viewpoint, and the philosophic viewpoint happens to be grounded in science, but it is still a, a viewpoint. It's still a belief, which is that uh, nothing but matter and energy exist, period. That is the foundation of scientific materialism, and therefore everything not only can be explained by the interactions of matter and energy, they will be. So even though scientific materialists haven't shown how the brain can create consciousness, they're convinced in their belief system that it's just a matter of time before science figures out how the brain creates consciousness. And this also applies to the origin of the universe. It applies to the origin of life. Uh, but they just believe it, it, it. there only is energy and matter, and therefore energy and matter will eventually be able to explain everything. But it is a belief system. They don't uh, use the scientific method of inquiry mm. in any and all directions. They use the scientific method of inquiry only toward uh, explaining things in terms of, of matter and energy. So consciousness gets sort of short shrift. Anyone who ventures out of that belief 
and says that consciousness exists beyond the brain, outside the brain, is basically just ignored. And when that person has the temerity to to really push it forward, then they're attacked by scientific materialists. But there's really reams of evidence that consciousness exists outside the brain. It's just not accepted within your typical scientific circles. What about ancient civilizations? What have we learned from them and what have you learned specifically from ancient civilizations about the way the brain works, about meditation and sort of the science of meditation? Well, uh, meditation has been taught uh, in uh, India. Obviously, today's India is a particular, uh, you know, political boundaries. But that area um, has been the kind of mother of meditation going back 3000 B.C., 4000, 5000 B.C. There's evidence that uh, there are figures seated in the lotus posture, looking like they're, they're meditating that go back that far. So meditation, somebody, uh, Yogananda, I think, actually said this, is that if you uh, eradicated all knowledge of meditation from everybody on the planet, they would soon reinvent it. It's sort of the same fundamental truth as mathematics. You eliminate all knowledge of mathematics, across the world, and they'll start reinventing it because it's it's a basic truth that uh, mankind will keep discovering. Mm. So uh, meditation goes, goes way back. Well, we're going to have to end it there. Fascinating, fascinating discussion. Joseph Selby, you can check out the website, physicsandgod.com. You can check out the books on there, and if the, there's a lot of resources if you're interested in learning how to meditate maybe for the first time or try a different form of meditation from one that you've, you've tried previously. Joseph, thanks so much for the time this morning. Oh, it's been my pleasure. All right. If you want to comment... On any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. When we return, I'll tell you why my wife is ready to nominate me for the Parenting Hall of Shame. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Actually showed a little bit of a sense of humor 
recently because there's this meme going on uh, on Twitter mocking his hair and his face. And uh, Rod Stewart himself tweeted about it and uh, seemed to be taking it in good humor. So I always like to see that self-deprecating, self-deprecating sense of humor that people have, especially celebrities, but certainly a a great musician, uh, no matter what. Hey, today, as uh, you've heard me and others mention, today we're having a a big gala celebrating the 100th anniversary of our radio station and celebrating the birthday of our owner, John Katsimatidis. So I was able to convince the Tuxedo authorities to rent me a Tuxedo for this this evening. More on that later, because this is a black tie. I thought it was a black tie affair. That's what my wife told me. But uh, according to Alex Barnard, it's black tie uh, optional. So we'll get into that a little bit later. But I was thinking, so my wife had to go to Tom's River, New Jersey yesterday, which is a hike for us, to help her sister trap a cat into a carrier so that they could get this cat to the vet. So my wife, as soon as she finished her workday, goes off to Tom's River. And that means, you know, I'm basically tasked with looking after Carmine, our nine-month-old son, who's now starting to crawl around and everything. And honestly, there's nothing I'd rather do. I'd spend time with Carmine all day. It does delay me preparing to work on the show, but uh, I'd happily make that trade any day of the week. But I was also thinking I've put on some weight over the summer, and a lot of people are going to be – I think I'm speaking at this gala that we're having tonight. A lot of people are going to be there. A lot of press is going to be there. A lot of fans are going to be there. A lot of advertisers. A lot of people might want photographs. I was thinking – in order so I don't look like Jabba the Hutt at this gala tonight, I think maybe I should fast, as I do from time to time, Monday and Tuesday. This way at least I take off a couple, three or four pounds of, you know, of excess weight. So this way I look almost human for some photographs. That was my plan. Well, that is absolutely the plan that I should have stuck with. Because... Uh, my wife is having a hard time with the, trapping this cat in Tom's River. And so she messages me, I'm not coming home for dinner. You're on your own. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking, all right, well, maybe I should make something. And I, I have been seeing some of these reels on Facebook and elsewhere promoting these different styles of low-carb egg wraps. I said, all right, let me make, try one of these low-carb egg wraps. So it's around 530 at night. And there's a lot going on. Trying to prepare for the radio show, listen to the Cats at Night show. I'm watching Carmine. Carmine's crawling around. So I go to the kitchen, and I start making eggs. And I put olive oil in the pan so that – and it's a well-greased pan so that I can flip it onto my low-carb tortilla and not have the eggs stick. Make sense? Okay. Well, um, unlike the robe that I'm normally in – I, I'm wearing a, a shirt, a shirt that I wear pretty regularly, at least once a week, because when I'm at my heavier, this is one of the few larger shirts that is actually doesn't hide some sin. So I spill oil as I'm flipping the eggs all over my shirt, and I'm pretty sure I got some oil on my son 
and burned him a little bit. Now, he didn't cry, but he's got these red dots on his face now, and I think it's an oil burn. Now, my wife, as you can imagine, when she came home after sitting in traffic for three hours, she was just just peeved. So I have I posted a photo of Carmine on my Facebook, facebook.com slash fan. You can see it on his left and on his right. Tell me if you think this is indeed an oil burn. If not, what is it? Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is the uh, other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Sunday is the anniversary of September 11th. It's a sad day, no matter what you do. And really, since the very first September 11th anniversary, when I say September 11th, I mean the September 11th attacks of 2001. And really, since the first anniversary of two, of um, 2002, really every single year, I wonder, as both a radio commentator and as a as a New Yorker and as an American, what is the proper way to remember September 11th? Now, it's a Sunday this year, so I'm not on the air that day, but I'm on the air the following day. And I do wonder, what is the best thing to do? Is it to relive... Every aspect of what happened on that day from start to finish. John Gambling, um, when I would talk to him, he was someone that was against continuing to broadcast the reading of the names. I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to misstate his position. And maybe I'll invite him on one day this week to to talk about it. But um, he was he basically didn't think that the country was well served by this collective mourning every year and that a lot of people die in tragic ways. And um, that uh, I've found that it does occasionally make it difficult for family members who died on September 11th to move forward with their lives while they're consumed by grief every year. I'm remind my friend, I don't want to mention any names. I had a friend who passed away uh, during September 11th. And my family used to organize a run in his honor every year to raise money for uh, the uh, Children's Burn Center at a hospital because he was a firefighter and this was a charity that was very close to his heart. And his widow would work with my family on hosting this every year and putting it together and ultimately, she chose not to continue it because it was just too emotionally stressful for their family to go through this every year. I'm sure they still do mourn him every every September 11th, but they don't necessarily want to take part in a public mourning. And it's funny. I People would... Uh, would call me to make plans and they say, Oh, you know, uh, what are you doing? Not the first weekend in September, but what's what the next weekend in September. 
And they said, oh, okay, I didn't realize that was September 11th. Maybe we shouldn't do something that day. And I don't know what the appropriate response is. Should you avoid doing things that day or should you not? 800-848-9222. Should it be all memorials all the time? Should it be a day of quiet prayer and reflection? Should it be um, watching the bell ceremony on television? Last year, um, I watched the ceremony that they did in my hometown that the mayor came to and that was very touching that the Staten Island Borough President James Otto had done. And I watched it, you know, on on television at home. And I usually go. I used to go in the past for whatever reason. I don't remember what happened, but last year I ended up watching it at home. And my wife did not want to be in the same room. She went into a different room and did something else because she said it was just too sad to be able to watch that. And I get that. So what I'm trying to figure out for myself as a person, as now a father that's going to have to teach his son about these lessons going forward, what is the right way? To remember September 11th, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Additionally, as a radio commentator, if you're on the air that day, do you want to essentially hear um, all September 11th all the time? Or do you want to hear a regular show as if it was September 12th or September 9th? What do you think and why? 800-848-9222, because I go back and forth. I really do. And I don't know, uh, I don't know what the, I don't know what the appropriate thing to do as an American, as a New Yorker, or a radio commentator is. I think you have to remember it. Um, but I am of the mindset, too, that I don't like the names being read every year. Um, I do think in that way we need to move on. But I am also with Rachel in terms of I don't watch anything. I've never been to the Freedom Tower or whatever they call it now. I have no desire to go there. I hate that it's a tourist attraction because um, I was I worked in New York. I was I worked on 26th Street at the time that it happened. I remember the chaos, mm. um, the aftermath, and also realized that Unless you were in New York, the rest of the country, they knew something happened, but they didn't realize the magnitude of what had happened. Because I dealt in entertainment, and I, I remember specifically that I had to get something delivered, a messenger, and it was coming from Los Angeles. The orders were from Los Angeles. And they were like, at 10.30 at night, the order was done at 2 in the afternoon. At 10.30, it still hadn't gotten to the person. And they were yelling at me in L.A., how can this not, I put this in at 2 o'clock, how could this not be there yet? On September 11th? This is the Friday of that week. Uh The Friday following. Following, yeah. September 11th happened on a Tuesday. On 2001. 2001. So this is the following Friday when the city was in mass chaos. And I I had like sort of a breakdown and I said, listen, I said, do you understand Mm -hmm. that the, the Twin Towers have fallen down? New York City is in absolute chaos right now, and I'm sorry that they're not getting their package right now. And the girl was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize. Like, they, she had no clue until I actually brought it up and then apologized. So I think it has to be remembered. 
but I also think there needs to be a way to to move on. Uh, and I think as it goes on every year, we come become removed. And now we're getting to a point where the younger generation, um, like Alex and like Ken, like they were little kids, right? Well, well and hardly remember. Well, there are people that are old enough to drink now that don't even that weren't even alive. Forget about being a little kid. Right? They weren't alive at all. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's a that's a fair point. Uh, Alex Barnard is here. What do you have to add? I, I agree with Matt. I think there has to be a way to rem- to remember it without uh, I, without having to sort of uh, w- while at the same time being able to move on from the pain in a way. I mean, it, it it is a painful day. I you know I was two or three. I don't remember anything about it, but I know my mom, for example, was supposed to have a meeting there the next day. Um, and obviously that got canceled. And my dad, I believe, um, worked in the neighborhood at the time. And he saw, you know, he, he called uh, my aunt, his uh, his sister, and was saying, oh, you know, they hit the towers. They hit the towers. I'm you know, running around outside. My uncle, you used to, who used to live downtown, saw the plane uh, overhead as he dropped off my cousin at preschool. Um, and... It's I yeah I just again I think it's it's something that people need to know about but I think there's a way that we could maybe move on without um without dis doing doing a disservice to those who died that day yeah and and that's kind of the uh, a balance that I wonder what is appropriate eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 and if you're like Rachel or you like Matt Blaze and I'll be honest if you like me to some extent and it just is such a downer. Do if you're on the radio or on television that day, is the right thing and the responsible thing to do as a broadcaster to engage in a day of collective depression? Right. Is that the responsible thing? Is that the patriotic thing? Is that the thing being a good New Yorker that you do? Um, If not. If you're on the radio or on television. Is it. The appropriate thing to to not spend the whole show talking about that. What do you think? Because I'll be honest, this is one of those. Sometimes I'll put talk topics out there and I'll ask questions that I already have an opinion on. This is one that I scratch my head about literally every year. Now, sometimes for whatever reason, we make a big deal about anniversaries that are on certain dates, the 10-year anniversary, the five-year anniversary, the 15, the 20, the 25. But in between, so on the 20-year the anniversary, obviously, the it's clear what you should do, right? You should um, make that wall-to-wall anniversary coverage. But on the 19th and the 21st and the 22nd, is the responsible thing to go wall-to-wall coverage of September 11th or is it to do other things? To, to do something that's entertaining. But if you're on the radio or on television telling jokes or talking about movies or pro wrestling, is that disrespectful and tone deaf? And as hard as it is, do you maybe have a responsibility to do that kind of a, a program? And these are questions I don't have an answer for. And I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. I mentioned John Gambling's position. I don't want to... I don't want to speak for him. Uh, John, and I, I. the reason I go to John is because he was on the radio literally 
during the September 11th attacks on this station, and he did great coverage along with Curtis Lewa, Ron Kuby, Phil Boyce, George Weber, Babita Hariani, a number of others. And I, because John was such an integral part of bringing people the coverage of what was happening as it was happening, I do respect his opinion a great deal in terms of how to remember this. So this is a portion of a conversation that John and I had two years ago. Stopping the reading of the names, I, I always questioned how long were we going to do that. Um, and, and I don't have an answer to how long you do that. So I really don't have a huge issue with them stopping this. I know I could be criticized by those who lost family members, and that I completely understand. But how long do we continue to do these sort of things? It has uh, the, the same applies to uh, the annual observation of uh, TWA Flight 800, which takes place out on Long Island. How long do we do that? I'm not suggesting that the family members don't continue to do that, but how long do we continue to make it sort of a, uh, a general, uh, generic... Um, right, a national day of mourning. Right, sort of. exactly, right. I mean, I just, I, th- I think all things must end. 800-848-9222, what say you? Uh, my friend Obi Murray, who uh, I mentioned earlier as a Facebook provocateur, uh, calling in. Obi, what's your take on this? Hey, Frank, great show tonight, by the way. Thanks, appreciate uh, it. As always. But uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's a day of remembrance and being solemn and respectful. Um, it's not energetic. It's not celebratory and excitement as far as who your guests might be and what the topics might be. I mean, the, med- the uh, meditation interview you just did would almost be perfect for that day. Things, how people can cope without just specifically saying – you know, 9-11 and, and what happened that day to, to the, the people around it. Because you have, you mentioned generations. Well, those generations also lost loved ones that they never met. Right. right. Whether it be parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and so forth. And that will go on for, for, for decades and, and for generations, too. So it's, it's a remembrance of what was going on, touching it, but then continuing the solemn day, I guess you might say. So maybe you it's a, maybe it's a question not necessarily of specific content, but more of tone. Yes. That tone would be the perfect word to use. Mm. Exactly. And you think about, you know, history of who was on the air then and what they were doing maybe, you know, and, and scatter that around with, with the meditation type conversation with a, a, a psychologist, maybe, maybe a priest, a rabbi, a, 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 any other type of religious leader. At some point, just scatter. You have four hours, so it's a very unique situation there too. Yeah, well, that's, that that's going true. on four yeah. hours after the whole day has been through, after the reading, after the, the lights in New York uh, are here shining. Tonight's too cloudy, but you know those of those that aren't in New York and across the country, they have the towers, the, the, the lights going right from where the towers were, shining up into the sky. Kind of thing. Uh, you're on that night. Yeah. No. You're, uh, yes, you're the morning the next day, but no, no, absolutely. Well, I'll be uh, passing the lights as I drive uh, from downtown. Obi, thanks for the right. call. I appreciate that. We'll be and in it, touch. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Joe is in Ronkonkoma. Hello. Hey, Frank. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I'm always honest. Yeah, I'm a little bit angered. Um, I'm a big uh, when it when it's nine eleven. My whole family. It's a very somber day. I lost. A friend, I have a neighbor that lost an uncle, and I think this should go on indefinitely. I think they should do more. 
I personally think that there's been a lot of new holidays. I'm not going to say the name of it. And I'm going to acknowledge that it's a day where businesses and government places close. I think they should make that date the same way. I think it should. It was called Patriot Day, but I think banks and government buildings should be close to remember these people. These people weren't. Uh, these people going to work, Frank, and they were attacked. And I, I truly believe the name should be read because these people need to be remembered. It was a day that we'll always never forget. That's what we said, never forget. And to to talk about this like this, it, it's upsetting to someone like myself and a lot of people out there. And I know you don't mean to upset people, and I, uh, I love your program, but I think this should be indefinitely. I don't think it should have a time limit. Have a good night, Frank. Well, uh, thanks, Joe. Uh, yeah, again, I'm not trying to upset anybody or be disrespectful to anybody. Look, I think all of us that lived here at the time at lost people that we cared about. Um, but I, I kind of get where Joe's coming from, and I get where my wife and to some extent Matt Blaze is coming from. Where, you know, Joe is saying, you know, the appropriate thing, the appropriate way to pay tribute to them is to pay tribute to them. And uh, I kind of get what Rachel is saying is, you know, I don't really want to be depressed and crying all day. I get both both views. And I, I get kind of like what Obi said there, that um, maybe it's more of a question of tone and not necessarily topic. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hi, Frank. You know, horrific days like these are never forgotten. I know on December 7th, my American Legion post, we go on the Staten Island Ferry, and uh, the ferry actually stops in front of the Statue of Liberty. We throw a wreath in the water and play taps. And, I mean, this is from World War Two. So uh, on a modern day, uh, 9-11... Me personally, I do three things in that day. I called my friend Trudy, who lost her nephew in the trade set. He was only working there two weeks, and the plane hit on the floor that he was in, that he was on. I called my brother, who worked in the emergency room in the hospital in New Jersey. They ferried people over, and he treated them. And then I reflect, because I drove a limo at that time, about 25 people that have been taken home for years who are no longer with us. So for me, it, it's, it's a really terrible day. But I'll never forget, and I'll always remember these people, and I think that's what we all should be doing. Thank you, Neil. 800-848-9222. Patricia is in Brooklyn. Hello, Patricia. Yes, good morning, Frank. I agree and disagree with just about all your callers. I think it should be aired. If you don't want to watch it and you can't handle it, don't. Um, It's like just what the the last caller said. It's it so reminds me of what my parents went through. So, for me, it's a hard day. It's a very hard day. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think everybody that uh, that lived through it, it was uh, it was a it was a hard day, uh, Patricia. And thank you for the call. All right. Well, I don't know. Maybe we'll revisit this tomorrow as well, and and on Friday, and maybe on Monday too. But. Whatever, whatever, wherever you come down on the question of how you personally want to commemorate or remember is a better word than commemorate, how you want to remember September 11th, I think that it is um, so important that we keep doing the good work 
that was started as a result of September 11th. And I don't think there's a better example of that than Frank Siller and the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Uh, Frank Siller is a remarkable man. And the fact that he was able to use his brother's tragic death, you know, his brother's murder, really, to turn this into something that has helped probably tens of thousands of people, maybe more, is quite frankly absolutely amazing. And what they do, they call it the Tunnel to Towers Foundation because Frank's brother, Stephen Siller, ran through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, now the Hugh L. Carey Tunnel, in order, in his gear, in order, he ran through it to the World Trade Center and subsequently died there. So now they recreate these steps, the steps that Stephen Siller took to, as a fundraiser, basically, a 5K walk and a run, and they use this money to help the family members of fallen servicemen get a mortgage-free home. I can't think of a more worthy cause. They use this money to um, help the family members of fallen police officers get a mortgage-free home. If you are a serviceman that comes back severely disabled and you are unable to do things like operate a light switch or, a, or a, you know, the kind of the basic things that we take for granted, they design smart homes for you. And this is a group that's near and dear to my heart. And uh, I try not to overcommit on the weekends to things because I, I try to spend time with my family and so forth. But I am happily participating in the Tunnel to Towers walk on Sunday September 25th. I'm hoping I'll see some of you there. Uh, but if you can't participate, I hope you'll at least make a contribution. You can make a contribution to my efforts at walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com and help the great work of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. And you can help. Um, you know, my friend Nick, who's very active in veterans' suicide, namely preventing it, he always talks about how what the Tunnel to Towers Foundation does is it takes a gun out of someone's mouth. Because if you are traumatized from something like PTSD or uh, because you have a traumatic brain injury and maybe you've lost limbs and you're not sure how you're going to provide for your family going forward, that's a level of stress that can drive someone over the edge. And what the Tunnel to Towers Foundation does is it not only helps these people financially – it can help save lives. So that's why I'm uh, always eager to do my part. Uh, I've made a contribution, and I hope you will too. Uh, so you can go to, again, walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com and make a contribution. All right, uh, Michael Harrison joins me next. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the nature of the media. We're going to talk about the nature of music, the nature of radio, and the nature of nature, among other things. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Thinking's on a holiday. 
for many folks every day. Spewing words of fear and hate makes our culture second rate. Let's start out with easy stuff, then the stuff that's far more tough. Here at home and overseas, ignorance is the real disease. Idiots walk among us. They're lazy, lazy, lazy. Idiots talk among us. Their speech is often hazy. This is a song that, believe it or not, is tearing up the charts on the talk radio music charts. We'll explain why in a minute. It is from Gun Hill Road's forthcoming fifth album. It's called Idiots. Now, some of you may be familiar with Gun Hill Road because of their classic song, Back When My Hair Was Short. But the Gun Hill Road of 2022 doesn't exactly sound like the Gun Hill Road of 1972 or 1973. And that's because of the voice that you just heard there. If that voice sounds familiar, it's because he has been a staple in radio, both talk radio and music radio for years. He's a friend of mine. And I used to say, that he was one of my favorite people in media and one of my favorite people in radio. But now I just say he's one of my favorite people. I am very, very pleased to welcome the publisher of Talkers Magazine and a member, a genuine, honest-to-God member of the rock group Gun Hill Road, Michael Harrison. Michael, it's great to talk with you again. Frank, what a nice introduction. Thank you so much. You know, I was thinking here as a kid who grew up in New York and loved pop music and rock music, the idea of um, having a song I'm involved in being played on WABC. (laughs) (laughs) That's like, whoa, who would have ever thunk it? You know, (laughs) so thank you. As somebody that uh, grew up uh, idolizing the the talk era and uh, really admiring the legacy of the music era, I totally empathize with the with the feeling of awe. Now, catch people up. I think we spoke about this a little bit in one of our pre- previous conversations, but how does Michael Harrison, a guy that uh, is a radio journalist, a guy that was a DJ, a guy that does great talk shows, a guy that does great podcasts, how does Michael Harrison end up as part of a rock group? Because it goes way back, and the story of uh, yours truly on Gun Hill Road is is really kind of a an amazing t- give you the very short version. In 1971 and 1972, I was the morning host on the legendary, no longer existent, WNEW-FM in New York, the album rock station that was a pioneer in terms of the FM uh, album rock scene. And I hosted the mornings there for almost two years. And back in those days, we used to be able to play you know, within the format, generally, whatever we wanted to. And I was a big fan of the local band, the New York-based band, Gun Hill Road. They had two albums out in those days, one in Mercury, one on Kamasutra. They had a hit single, Back When My Hair Was Short. And they had some great album tracks that a lot of my colleagues in rock radio love to play on the FM dial. And I used to play them every day and got to know the guys. And um, we all went our ways, obviously. They didn't, um, you know, Gun Hill Road is not a household name, but they stayed together as friends and they would occasionally come back together and make some music. Over the years, they've had four albums. I have been friends with them. Um, Their last um, reunion was uh, eight years ago. I emceed a reunion concert for them at the uh, Bitter End where they used to play. Mm. And um, to make a long story short, 
uh, last year during the pandemic, they made their fourth album, and I came up with the song, um, I Know You're Real, which expressed my sentiments about animals and animal welfare, and it became a YouTube hit, an internet hit on talk radio, you know, in my talky, singy style. And um, they made me a member of the group. <laughs> and now the fifth album is, in, is you know, being made, and uh, we collaborated, came up with a song called Idiots, which was specifically designed to be a talk radio record, which is, of course, sort of a uh, oxymoron, a record for talk radio, but uh, it's working. I love the concept, and uh, if people haven't seen the video yet, uh, we played the song a few times, but uh, I have a link to the video up on my uh, my Facebook page, which people can check out at facebook.com slash MoranoFan, or you could just go to the website, idiotsvideo.com. I love a lot of the visuals that are in there that are depicting some of the lyrics that you're talking about. Do you consider the story of Gun Hill Road, uh, the, the band, going back 50 years now, do yes. you consider it a comeback story? I consider it a, a reinvention story that's the result of perseverance and doing something for the joy of doing it. I do not consider it a comeback. I, I don't think they ever really went away um, because they stayed together. They remained very good friends. Usually bands break up, egos, sure. money problems, all kinds of lawsuits. So in a way, it's a comeback, um, but it's more of a reinvention, and um, it's it, it, it's a very interesting story, isn't it? I mean, I mean, the idea of totally. older people making rock music is not is not a novelty. I mean, some of the greatest rock stars in the world today are in their 60s and 70s, and they're still performing. So it's not a story that, oh, look at these old guys making rock music. The best rock music today is made by old guys. So it's, oh. it's more of just an interesting band that has been under the radar in terms of popular culture and top 40 radio. But um, they've developed over the years a very large following on the internet and they do it and I do it purely for the joy of it. You know, it's very hard to make money in the music business today unless you're a touring band and that's not about to happen with us. We're talking with Michael Harrison. You could hear his voice on the uh, new song, Idiots, uh, which is on the forthcoming fifth album for Gun Hill Road. Tell me about this song, Idiots. What was the impetus for this? What was the inspiration for it? Well, the um, the, the, the impetus and inspiration was that um, as we were talking about uh, Steve Goldrich, Paul Reich, and Brian Coonan are the other members. We're a quartet. And... Um, we were just talking about the problems in our society and the left and the right and and uh, the way the, the nation is so polarized. And I think I came up with the, uh, the remark, you know, there are idiots on all sides. Um, uh, one thing that could bring the left and the right together is talk about just ignorance in America. Ignorance is something that makes the left look bad. It makes the right look bad. And, and there's so much idiotic behavior. There's um, frivolous thinking. There's narcissism. There's complete uh, out-of-touch um, thinking in terms of what's going on in the world. Most people, um, well, there's a line in it. They, they buy the crap that's sold them mm. from the merchants of division. You know, half-baked dumb ideas get currency. Conspiracy theories that are silly and stupid. Um, so the basic premise is how do you run an effective democracy 
when you have such a large and growing segment of the population not knowing what the hell is going on. A, uh, a, 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 a democracy demands an intelligent populace. Uh, this is why the song really resonated with with me, and that's what I try to do to a large extent on this show. And I love that you take shots at the uh, merchants of division on both sides, and I love that it's nonpartisan. But explain to the audience, obviously, I, I think most of the hosts on WABC are pretty conservative. Most of the hosts on all the major talk stations seem to be yes. pretty conservative. So a lot of the listenership seems to be conservative. And what I've noticed is when conservatives call me, they are very clear. They know who the idiots are and the idiots are the left when uh, people that are on the left call me they know exactly the problem the problem is very clear they know who the idiots are it's the folks on the the right and it's donald trump and it's donald trump supporters now you are marketing this primarily through the world of talk radio and talk radio is primarily conservative is that a message that nonpartisan message the fact that neither party has a monopoly on idiocy is that a message that you found difficult to gain traction for on an audience that might tend to be conservative that's a great question. And a lot of people, when we were putting this together, said, oh, everybody's going to be insulted. And, 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 and you're insulting people. I said, I'm not insulting anybody that's intelligent. And interestingly, Frank, the people on the right, half of them think it's about the people on the left. The people on the left, half of them think it's about the people on the right, and the rest of them understand that this is a matter that brings us together. The left and the right come together on this because both sides are made to look ridiculous by the idiots among them. How many times have conservative hosts or conservatives listening to this got wincing, go, ooh, I wish that they didn't call that person a conservative. It makes it look bad for us. And the left oh, is sure. the same way. The left has its spectrum of um, plausibility to insanity, just as the right does. And then there are the people in the middle. Some of the smartest people in this country are in the middle and don't want to get involved in, in any kind of wing, left-wing or right-wing politics. There's a long history of that. Um, but then there are people in the middle, and they constitute, I think, a majority that just don't know what the hell's going on and mm. don't care. Some of them just don't have time to think about what's going on because they're struggling with the burdens of life and they're trying to find some relief through entertainment and, and hobbies and fun and socializing and whatever else they do to, to relieve their tensions. But there is a growing number of people in this country. Sometimes you see them in comedy bits, you know, like the old jaywalking thing that Jay Leno did. You see a tremendous amount of stuff on the internet, on YouTube, of, of it's kind of funny, but it's really not, of people who are so dumb you can't believe they're real. And if you were to go out to the average place where there's just a cross-section of humanity, a mall, the street, you know, no place where uh, it's a pre-selected group, where, where self-selecting group, just an average random place, and you talk to people about who's the president, who's the vice president, who's your senator, what's the newspaper, what's, what district do you live in, um, what's, what's the name of your town? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, what ocean is over mm. there and which one is behind us? Which way is north? Which way is south? Um, who's the president of uh, Russia? Um, what's our relationship with China? Any kind of questions, you'd be amazed that they are totally out to lunch on a level that is 
shocking. And for those of us, you know, people who listen to WABC are smart people. People who listen to news talk radio, subscribe to a newspaper, watch cable news talk TV, follow the news. These are not the people that this record is aimed at. So we get we start to think that everybody's smart like us. Everybody knows what the top topics are and what's going on and what's happening in Congress. And, you know, we think, you know, we hear it and we think everybody knows it. But the truth of the matter is there are a lot of people in this country and they vote and they vote for stupid reasons. They vote for, oh, I like what he says or oh, I like her <laughs> I like them you know right or ethnic reasons or gender reasons uh, oh, yeah. I mean yeah. you're you're exactly right uh talking with Michael Harrison he's the publisher of Talkers you could check out uh, the great work Talkers does and subscribe to the email list at talkers.com speaking of talk radio and the divisions that are in this country and the ignorance that's out there across the political spectrum do you think that talk radio can do a better job bringing people together rather than sort of appealing to the lowest common denominator and maybe sowing the seeds of division uh, by uh, playing to the echo chamber for whatever side fits closer to their worldview? I think playing to the echo chamber is going for the lowest hanging fruit. I think it's the easiest way out. I've always been for playing to the highest common denominator, at least to a certain degree. I think that the intelligent, the intelligent is one of the most underserved large segments of our population today by politics and media. Um, And because the idiots are out there, it gives people who run for office and people that run the media the feeling that uh, people are idiots. Why should we? Let's not shoot above their head. You know, bring it down. Don't talk above their heads, Frank. Um, I I think this is something that has always been a problem. Um, today, the media targets audiences based upon what they already believe or what they already like and gives it to them. It's called red meat. You feed red meat to the lions, they'll be happy. Uh, don't try to educate them. Don't try to turn them around. Don't try to provoke them. Just tell them what they want to hear. I call it the daily dance of affirmation. It wasn't always that way. There was once a time when, especially talk radio, you'd put characters on the air, interesting curmudgeons and people that were hard to predict what they'd like or populists, just unusual people, and then you'd see what they would attract. But today, it's it's different. And I'm not, I'm not saying all across the board. I'm not saying sure, you, I'm not saying WABC. But you know, this is basically the way all media operates today. It targets what it considers to be vacuums. Uh, in terms of opinion and, and, and lifestyles, and then it reaps the low-hanging fruit. It, it, they, they get a certain amount of people that they can count on who feel good about hearing what they already believe and what they've been arguing at the Thanksgiving table with their crazy uncle about. One of the things that I've found pretty alarming, especially over the last 15 years, but maybe probably even going back further, is I was a great fan of Bob Grant. And like you were, I was a friend of his uh, towards the end of his life. And I know you stepped in and gave him this Lifetime Achievement Award at a time when he was uh, uh, canceled before cancel culture was even a thing. And one of the things that I don't think some people got about Bob Grant and his show when he would yell at people and hang up on people and give people dopey names 
nicknames is that he was doing this for entertainment and that Bob uh, didn't mean for his, you know, random uh, rants to do anything other than get people to listen to the radio and entertain. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people that came after Bob in media, they view that as how political discourse is supposed to take place. And a lot of people that might listen to folks that do that are making serious political judgments about who to back. And uh, I'm just wondering when people started taking entertainment as being what what they should cast uh, political votes on. It's pretty alarming to me. Do you share that concern? I find it very alarming because you said something there that was uh, very interesting. Uh, you said that we both were friends of, of Bob Grant. Well, there's a lot of people in the media whom I'm a friend of or a colleague of or I know them personally. And then when I see people taking their advice, I laugh because I know that they can't even run their own lives. They don't know what the hell's going on. They're following talking points. And to take the advice of some, you know, when you see somebody, oh, I really respect Joe Blow. Uh, you know, I wouldn't know what to do if it weren't for him. I get all my information from him and i know joe blows a, a blowhard or an idiot uh so no this is this right, is on the really verge of being evicted and can't balance his checkbook and yet we're exactly. gonna take advice on the congress the, how to run the budget right you know? middle east peace process it's true well what do you think the solution is michael clearly there's a, a bit a lot of people that listen to talk radio and with podcasting there's a lot more potential people that could be won over to the spoken word format what's the what's the solution to seeing uh radio Radio and spoken word audio continue to grow without um, sowing the seeds of division in the manner in which you describe in Idiots. It has to do with character. We all have to look at ourselves and judge our own character and, and proceed out into the world with goodwill. Try to put yourself in the other guy's shoes. Why do people feel the way they feel? Why do they have the view they have? What is their life like? How is the system affecting them? That's one. Uh, two is we have to think in the long term. We can't solve problems with quick solutions and cosmetic um, cosmetic surgery just to make it look like the politicians are doing something for their base and they're doing nothing. We have to have the patience to have long-term solutions and that starts with upgrading our education system. Our education system in America is out of whack. We have to come to terms with the evolution of digital media. We, we have digital media addiction and we are missing using digital media. It's a double-edged sword and, and misused. It's extremely dangerous. So we have to upgrade our education. We have to come to grips with how to control and handle this accelerated media that's in our faces today. And we have to think about our own character and our own natures and, and, and look for the better side of people and um, proceed into this world with goodwill. There's a portion of the song, there's a lyric where you describe, you say life is full of mysteries. And in the video, yes. at that point, there's an alien, uh, which I think is pretty cool because I'm very interested in uh, the exploration of extraterrestrial life and his life out there and that whole thing. It is is the exploration of mysteries, and I know you've referred to it, and uh, the late great Alan Combs used to do a project with you. You refer to it as the metaphysical, and uh, that's an aspect that I think talk radio could do a much better job exploring. Is that an area what maybe could bring people who can't agree on uh, Russia policy or the Inflation Adjustment Act or infrastructure? Is that an area that maybe could bring listeners of different political stripes together? 
there exploring mysteries in the metaphysical. Yes, indeed. As a matter of fact, look at the relationship we've had with the Russians over the years in terms of our common interest in uh, astronomy and astrophysics. Um, There's tremendous cooperation on the science front and um, in terms of many of the disciplines outside of politics and militarism, where seemingly enemy nations are working in concert with each other. Uh, So so it's proven that that works. Um, Part of talk radio's heritage is in the metaphysical, dealing with, with, with the mysteries of the universe. We're never going to run out of material because the mysteries get bigger as we learn more. The questions increase. So um, it it goes hand in glove with talk radio. But there's another part of it. Um, Mystery is something we have to learn to live with. People that want instant answers to complex issues like, is there a God? Or is there life out there? Or um, what really makes human nature tick? And you come up with simple answers that somebody else told you and indoctrinates you with. That's the ultimate idiocy. We have to learn to live with mystery and realize that to to solve mysteries is a long, complicated road. And 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 that's that that one line. You know, um, you know, there are mysteries that want to be aloof. You know, and and the alien has a sign saying humans don't deserve Earth. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to mention, if I may plug a little bit, that the um, the video really takes the song to another dimension. By having pictures, you can see some of the chilling and really scary impact that idiocy in America can have. And again, it's um, idiotsvideo.com or on your Facebook page. Well, I was just going to ask you, uh, because it's very well produced, did uh, did you produce the video aspect of oh, this yeah. as well? Yeah, we produced That's, it. We produced great. it. My son, Matthew Harrison, took the lead in that, but mm-hmm. um, we, we all played a hand in producing it. It's an original concept, as is the music. You know, a lot of people say, "How that is an awfully good record, Michael. Is that karaoke? I go, no. <laughs> Everything no, on that record's organic. Those are real horns. Those are real strings. Those are real guitars. This is a real group. And boy, do they sound good. I'm so blessed. I really am, Frank. It's really well done. Uh, the video towards the end, it, I don't want to spoil it. People should watch it. And um, well, I'm not even scratching the surface of all the great stuff that's in the song and in the video. But the, towards the end, there's a mushroom cloud similar to mm-hmm. what you'd see if an atomic bomb blew up. Are, are you genuinely concerned that the level of idiocy, not only in this country, but internationally, that it could lead to a situation which we see nations using nuclear clear weapons against one another. Yes, I believe that idiocy, that the sin of idiocy in this marvelous thing known as the human brain that is capable of so much that the the alternate side of the human brain that fosters idiocy um, is a threat to the survival of the human race within our lifetimes. Mm. Well, let's uh, let's hope we get a cure for uh, idiocy sometime soon, or at least hope that uh, songs like this uh, help it from keep it from being too contagious. Michael Harrison, final question: Now that you're officially a rock star, do you find yourself <laughs> partying until the wee hours of the morning, waking up with a, a bevy of uh, half-naked women uh, in a uh, in a in a marijuana-fueled uh, back room in a seedy hotel somewhere? In my dreams. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I highly recommend people check out the video and the song. It's called Idiots. We'll play you another uh, little bit of it here. Michael, thank you. It's always such a treat to talk with you. Thank you, Frank. What a pleasure. I appreciate it. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. the real disease. They're lazy, lazy, lazy. Their speech is often hazy. Never ceases to amaze me. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Discovered this song? This will come as no surprise to you. Season two, episode one, only murders in the building. The one television show I watch is now my portal to every aspect of pop cultural discovery. I'm discovering songs, actresses. It's really been quite an eye opener. All right, uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. If you want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222. I'm going to get to your calls momentarily. Um, you know, Michael Harrison just told me he's actually going to this um, gala tonight that we're having in honor of the 100th anniversary of WABC and the in honor of John Katzmatidi's birthday. So he's going to be there. So I, I was concerned. Now I'm all set on the tuxedo front. I was able to rent a tuxedo for tonight. And I'm all set on that front. But I was concerned that this is a black tie affair and I'm going to be the only schlemiel without a tuxedo. And then um, Alex Barnard, who somehow conned his way into an invitation to this, he tells me that is correct. He tells me that the uh, invitation is black tie optional. Right. So suggested. Suggested. Right. No, it's not optional. Suggested. Suggested. Right. Suggested. He made it right, suggested, which means you should wear it, right? So, exactly. So then um, uh, Chad Lopez, our president, president of Red Apple Media, he asked me to reach out to David Limbaugh, Russia's brother and a distinguished writer in his own right, and invite David Limbaugh to this. So I, I don't know if they were in touch, but he asked me to follow up with David Limbaugh. So I did. So I reached out to David Limbaugh. I said, David, you know, we'd really like you at this thing. It would mean a lot to everybody that's going. Can you come? And uh, David writes, writes back to me. says, uh, you know, I have a television appearance at this time. I think I could be there by that time. But I'm not going to be able to wear a tuxedo. I'll, I'll only be in a suit. I can't do black tie. 
And so now that I'm going to be black-tied, I am totally prepared to look down upon everybody else that is not wearing a black-tie adherent outfit. I, I, I am preparing a whispering campaign. See that? It's David Limbaugh, big lawyer, Russia's brother. What's the matter? Can't afford a tuxedo. Who's that? Alex Barnard. Alex Barnard? Is that the death metal guy? Oh, no wonder he doesn't want to wear a tuxedo. So I am, I'm preparing See, I my lines. So. I'm preparing my lines for everybody that is not wearing a tuxedo and preparing to scoff at them. Now, because my wife had to drive all the way out to Tom's River and all the way back, and she got nothing done yesterday, nothing at all. And she was just in an end because I may have burned her son with hot oil. She is not at all in the mood to go to this thing tonight. So we'll see. Alex Barnard was upset that he couldn't take his girlfriend. So I may take his girlfriend as my date instead. We'll see how that goes. We'll see. Uh, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thank you for starting your Wednesday with me. And a lot of interesting stuff. Hey, we're going to get into a bunch of space stuff with Dr. Sky tomorrow. He's going to join us in our first hour. And I'm going to reserve most of the serious science related to Artemis and the new launch date for Artemis to reserve that for him tomorrow because he's a real expert in that. Although I did read... One of the most fascinating pieces in the world uh, that I'm going to tell you about in just a moment. But first, I want to thank Donna from Huntington. Donna from Huntington is a great lady. I've met her now uh, many times, I think probably close to a dozen times. And every time I see her, she is just a treat. She is one of our most supportive listeners. She came to New Year's Eve Eve. And she's a delight. She's good company. She's fun. She's got a great attitude. She came to the uh, Joe Nolan event down at the Jersey Shore, even though she comes all the way from uh, Long Island. She came to a couple of, uh, you know, networking events that I've had. She came to a fundraiser we had for, not we, but that I host, that I attended for Lyrics for Lucas for, um, you know, very sad situation that one of our listeners, Al, is involved in that he's turned into a a positive. She is just wonderful. She came out to that event that Frank McKay hosted that I was featured at at the other room. She she comes to everything. She's great. She's donated to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. She's donated to the National Psoriasis Foundation. Other than my mom, she might be the most devoted 
listener we have in terms of heeding calls to action. And she's just a nice person. And she's been through a lot. You might remember she had called a while ago, maybe about a year ago, that her siblings were trying to scam her out of uh, her her mother's house, even though she took care of her mother and everything before she died. It's a sad situation, and uh, I think it's great that she has such a great attitude. Now, she sent me an SMS text message the other day, and you can always SMS text message me at 8168Morano. She said, because uh, we were talking about Salmon and how I was willing, my wife and I were willing not to eat wild salmon from uh, Wegmans. And instead, we went with the EU organic salmon, which was really terrific. It's just delicious. And I think it's almost as healthy as the wild salmon. But I don't want to get into a wild versus organic salmon. Now, she said at the time, did you get the salmon I sent you to the radio station? I said, no. She said, huh, that's strange. I sent it there. At least I think I sent it. Maybe I didn't. She said, huh, maybe you didn't. I I didn't think much of it. She said, all right, I'm going to send it again. And I'm thinking, okay, if she sends it, great. If not, great. (laughs) Well, yesterday, I arrive at the radio station. And there are several, it was almost like a Kris Kringle scene from Miracle 34th Street. Several packages waiting for me. And there were books and there were letters. And there were three or four packets all from companies that sounded like they were selling fish. I said, wait a minute. Did, I hope Donna did not send us four things of salmon. So I opened the first batch. First batch contains three bags. Ugh. And... <laughs> These bags are three bags of Nordic Snack Cod Jerky Bites. Cod Jerky Bites. 84% protein. Now, keep in mind that the only thing I had all day to eat yesterday was, was I think, two, two eggs. Two eggs on a low-carb tortilla. And I I had to eat it hastily because I was concerned that I might have burned my son and irreparably harmed him. Uh, Please, I can't even think about him and listen to him crying because it'll make me cry. I was so upset that that these red marks on his face and his arm might be for me. You could see the photo I posted on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Morano fan. And uh, you'll see uh, he's got – and I'm hoping – so he's got on his right forehead a red mark, and he's got on his left temple a red mark, and he's got on his left arm, in the crook of his arm, a red arm, a, a red mark. I think these might all be oil burns. And um, thank God he went to sleep before his mother came home. And I, I, after I gave him a bath, I covered this kid in bacitracin. And I am hoping that he is he is fully healed by tomorrow, and there are no red marks. Because if these marks look like welts tomorrow, then not only is Rachel not going to accompany me to this gala, but I can assure you, um, I can assure you, you know, <laughs> Rachel may be in the market for an attorney at some point. But anyway, 
So um, I, I the point is, it was not a leisurely meal. I kind of I rushed that down. So I said, well, these cod jerky bites look good. I like cod, and they're 84% protein. It says it's traditional Icelandic healthy snacks produced from 175 uh, grams of fresh uh, fresh fillets. Natural product, gluten-free, very little fat, no carbs, 29 grams of protein, very little calories. So I said, let me try one. Now, keep in mind, I'm super hungry, super hungry. Let me try one. I try one. I have to tell you, it is pretty close to the most revolting thing I've ever tried. If you can picture what a combination of dried cat food and dried fish food tastes like, that is a pretty good approximation of these cod jerky bites. So I said, let me open these other containers here. And then I see one one bag contains salmon jerky, spicy salmon jerky, just like beef jerky, uh, teriyaki salmon jerky, and original salmon jerky. So I said, all right, let me try the spicy salmon jerky. This is better. This is a lot better. But uh, it's tough to make it through a whole one of these. It's it's tough. In fact, Rita Cosby was walking by as, as she saw me eating one of these. And I offered her one right away. I said, Rita, do you want to try one? She says, no, I'm not really into fish. And kind of the look on your face says it all. About whether I should try it. But again, it's healthy. Outrageous. Gluten-free, wild-caught, low sugar. Uh, do you want to try this, the Matt Place? What do you think? You want to try one of these uh, spicy salmon jerkies? Hell no. no. You know, Kenneth, what about you? No? All right, I'm going to put them in the kitchen. Um, the salmon was better. And then I don't dare try this because this looks this looks awful. Okay. This is from... Some foreign country, I don't know if it's Norway um, or somewhere else, because it's in a foreign land. Oh, it's Icelandic. Okay. Icelandic traditional dried fish jerky. (laughs) It looks very healthy, 84% protein. I cannot bring myself to try this. And I love fish. I'm still so jaded by the cod, the cod jerky. That I'm afraid to try this fish oh, jerky. It's horrible! It's horrible! It's horrible! I don't know what fish this is from. This fish jerky, but I'm not prepared to try. Will you try one of these? The fish jerky, Matt Blaze. No. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Deb, it's here. If you want to try, Deb Valentine is here. Hell um, no. She went to a lot of trouble to send us these. I feel like we should all at least try them. Why? That's all I'm saying. All right. On to more cosmic pursuits. If a photo of a possibly scalded Carmine William Morano is not enough to get you to tune to my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash fan, you've got to read this column by Christopher Mellon. This is brilliant. And uh, it's, it's from a website called thedebrief.org. Headline, The Paradox of Fermi's Paradox. I don't know if you remember Christopher Mellon from that 60 Minutes piece on UFOs, but um, he's a really an interesting guy, and I'm trying to get him on the show. 
He spent nearly 20 years in the U.S. intelligence community, including serving as the minority staff director at the Senate Intelligence Committee and as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. And um, he's working hard to raise awareness regarding the UAP issue and its implications for national security. He's been featured on Smirconish and a bunch of other shows. And essentially, Christopher Mellon writes in much more scholarly terms than I could ever come up with what I've always been meaning to say. And it's an answer to Fermi's paradox. Do you know what Fermi's paradox is? Well, Enrico Fermi was a brilliant scientist. And in the 40s, he said basically, if um, statistically, the galaxy is a big place and space is a big place. So statistically, there are all sorts of civilizations that are out there. And basically, Fermi said, and this is what they've nicknamed Fermi's Paradox, well, if all these civilizations are out there, why has no one visited us? So this, for instance, Duncan Forgan uh, at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh carefully evaluated data on the composition of the Milky Way and concluded there should be over 360 stable, advanced civilizations in our galaxy alone. That's just our galaxy. Before you get out of our galaxy. So Fermi would sort of ask the question, where is everybody? Now, he, he also believed, Duncan Forgan, that if microbial life can spread via meteors, we may be sharing the Milky Way with tens of thousands of technologically advanced civilizations. And basically what Mellon gets into in this article, and it's a lengthy piece, and I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but I have linked to it on my Facebook page. I want you to read it. Essentially what, what Mellon says here is not that the question everybody should be asking is where is everybody? Why are they not visiting us? The question should be why are we ignoring all of the many UFO sightings and possible UAP visits that we've been seeing over the years. So Christopher Mellon calls this the UAP paradox. And he says for him, the real question is, why are so few scientists willing to consider UAP as potential alien probes when there's such extensive evidence of mysterious craft in our skies demonstrating capabilities that are otherwise found in science fiction. And he gets into what happened at Los Alamos in May of 1950. And at Los Alamos, there were in, uh, excuse me, March, uh, yeah, May of 1950. And in 1950, dozens of residents of nearby Farmington, New Mexico, reported hundreds, hundreds of silver metallic discs flying in formation over their town in broad daylight. In other words, hundreds of UAP were being observed by all manner of personnel in the vicinity of Los Alamos. Now, then he goes and says, this is not an isolated incident. And he goes and chronicles the Nimitz incident with the uh, the Tic Tac objects, and all sorts of other documented instances of 
people seeing UAPs. Um, what, he addresses commercial airline pilots. He basically says, uh, oh, so many people are saying, well, if UAP, if you, uh, this is the quote that SETI researchers often ask. If UAP are real, how come commercial airline pilots never see them? Mellon answers them back. How could these SETI scientists be so grossly mistaken when a simple Google query is all it takes to find credible data regarding thousands of commercial airline pilot sightings of UAP? So I thought this was so interesting. And what this article does in a very scholarly way is it gets to the reasons that mainstream scientists fail to connect UAP and the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Number one is lack of information. Number two is science versus national security. And he describes there's a fundamental difference in evidentiary standards between the national security community and scientists and academics. Scientists strive to formulate hypotheses that can be tested and disproven. They then publish their results so others can replicate their findings. Um, Military is a different situation, as we saw with the Nimitz case. Number three is the stigma. The lack of basic knowledge regarding UAP has been seriously compounded by this demeaning attitude that we have towards people that see them. Four is the social nature of information. And the last is what he describes as cognitive dissonance. It doesn't help that the implications of the extraterrestrial hypothesis are deeply disturbing for most people. And then, as if this wasn't enough, and you've got to read this article because it's part history part science, part explanation, but it ends on a very hopeful tone. And he gets into the reasons that those of us who think there's something to these UAP sightings should have reasons for optimism. And he talks about how we now have a top-down Department of Defense effort embraced at the highest levels, which is unprecedented in American history. And that we have um, historic whistleblower provisions in the pending intelligence and Department of Defense bills. Uh, He talks about how the media is taking this seriously for the first time. And that we're seeing a lot of positive glimmers resulting from this public interest in UAPs. It's encouraging to see that a handful of private citizens in America can still bring about changes in policy when they have facts and data on their side. And it's a relief to see that the U.S. uh, Congress is still capable of meaningful bipartisan collaboration. It's also encouraging to see that empirical data can still win the day in Congress, despite the increasing public rejection of scientific data and principles. It's really such a well-done article. And I felt really good about not thinking that I was crazy. Sometimes I will see the evidence plainly before me and everyone else, and then I'll hear callers like Ted from Queens, Forest Hills, I think, who says, uh, flying saucers do not exist. And I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, what about this, 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 and this? Is, the question is not, are UAPs out there? The question is, what are UAPs? That's the fundamental question we should be asking. That's what all this is about. The mystery of what are these objects? Not are these objects. What are these objects? And I think uh, Christopher Mellon does a masterful job. So this is a five-star day to like my Facebook page. 
If you like my Facebook page, you will get to see the Michael Harrison video from Gun Hill Road. You'll get to see a very cute photograph of uh, young Carmine William Morano in uh, his Met gear, which may or may not include three visible oil burns. We hope not. And four, as you'll see, or three, I've lost track. Three, you will see this Christopher Mellon article and uh, draw your own conclusions. I'd love to have him come on for a whole hour and address some uh, listeners on this front. All right, uh, let me tell you what's coming up. We are going to talk with a very, very fascinating writer by the name of Louise Perry. She thinks the sexual revolution got it wrong and that women have not been well served by uh, the sexual revolution. We're going to get into that. Uh, And we're also going to give you an opportunity to win some money as part of the $1,000 Minute. If you want to comment on anything that we're talking about, you can do so at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. A number of you have been holding for a while. Let me try and get to a few of you here. Mike is in Woodside. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. How are you doing? Uh, You know, I make a living. (laughs) <laughs> no, I was thinking we were talking about 9-11 a while ago, and, and uh, you, you had this uh, issue out there about, uh, you know, what, what is commemorating or celebrating or, or remembering the uh, the events. You know, uh, I wasn't here that day. I was in the Philippines uh, covering stories over there, which were ironically terrorism-related. And uh, it, it was it was a it was a different experience for me because I saw it from that part of the world. But you know, eventually, I, I'm sad as sad as this is going to sound. Eventually, 9/11 is just going to be like what I saw as a kid in Hawaii when uh, there was actually a sale of Infamy Day on December 7th at the Alahuano Mall. You know, I mean, it, 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 it actually came to that extent that the people remember the Pearl Harbor bombing for a sale. As sad as that's going to be, someday there's going to be, you know, not in the next 10 years, maybe. But as people get older, as the, you know, uh, people come to terms with what happened and as the survivors, uh, you know, pass away, you're going to see more and more a different kind of remembrance as to similar to, you know, the other 11 day, which is Memorial Day, you know, the 11th hour, 11th day, and people are eventually going to go that route. It's it's just going to be another day that we remember, a sad day, a tragic day, but it's going to be just another day. Well, so it sounds like what you're describing is uh, is inevitable. It sounds like there's no way around it. Yes. It's not something that I want to see, you know, I mean, you know, obviously uh, I had friends also who were affected on that day uh, in the war on terror, which I covered for 20 years, you know, uh, you know, different parts of the world that going after seeing these things, you know, seeing all the horrible stuff that I saw, uh, you know, with, with hostages, uh, getting videos of things done to people that to this day, I still can't close my eyes and not see those faces. Uh, you know, from the various terrorist groups. And uh, it's just is going to head that way. Mm. The rest of the world has already kind of moved on. And I think eventually New Yorkers will, too. Mm. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. I I think your prophecy is probably right on the money. Uh, I don't know if there's a way to combat that. And I don't know if the way to combat that is with continuing with this day of national mourning 
as as we have. I don't I don't know, quite honestly. I'm out of answers when it comes to this. You know, I, I had hoped to go through the mail today, but this is what happens when you have three guests. We're not going to get to do it today. Uh, we'll go through. We'll do a supplemental mail segment on Friday, I think. But I, I do want to address this one piece of mail from Howard, who writes, subject, bumper and incidental music. Frank, I listen to the show every night you're on, not in its entirety, mind you, but enough of it. And it's terrific. Well, first of all, Howard, how do you know what enough of it is? I think you should be listening in its entirety. But anyway, I listen to the show every night you're on, not in its entirety, mind you, but enough of it. And it's terrific. Nothing quite like it on talk radio. That's right. Question, how can I get a list of your bumper music and music you play during the show? I love I'm Not Tired Yet, and tonight you played something very catchy from a cable show called Ain't Nothing But The Real Thing, but obviously not the Marvin Gaye song. Any help would be appreciated. Howard, uh, you know, I feel like I say this pretty regularly, but I'll repeat it again. Every morning right after the show, uh, we post all the bumper music in the Facebook group. All you have to do is join the Facebook group, and you'll see it. And you can comment on it, you can not comment on it, and it's listed in order. So if you're on Facebook, just go to Facebook uh, and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Or you could just type in Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. All right, uh, before we get to the $1,000 minute, let me say a quick hello to Mikey from Brooklyn. Hello, Mikey. Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you? Great, Mikey. What's on your mind? I'd like to say this. I had a I had a friend who's long gone, but he was a very very intelligent man. I I felt he was, and he had said to me, "We're searching for aliens. We are the aliens because this Earth was seeded thousands and thousands and millions of years ago." So I don't know. Well, what do you think about that? You know, Mikey, uh, believe it or not, Bill Burns, who is a writer and a Ph.D., and I think maybe even a lawyer, too, but certainly a Ph.D., but he's a writer. He's been a guest on this show many times, and he's somebody I really respect. And I'm not saying he's right about everything, but I think he is right about a good number of things. He said the same thing when people uh, called in. I, I think that's a pretty interesting hypothesis. If you email me, Mikey, I'll send you some of my interviews with Bill Burns where he talks a little bit about that. My email's frank.morano oh. at wabcradio.com. Mikey, I got to run because I want to give people an opportunity to win some money. If you would like to be $1,000 richer, then be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, you will be able to have try your hand at answering a th- uh, uh, excuse me ten questions in sixty seconds. If you can do that, pretty easy trivia questions. There's only one I think that is tough here. If you can do that, then you will be one thousand dollars richer. Simple as that. Louise Perry will then join me to talk about the sexual revolution and some lessons, especially for you ladies out there, that your mother may have been right about. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. 
Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Baby, you went and broke your faithful promise. How could you do a thing like that to me? Didn't I give you everything I promised? How could you do a thing like that to me? Never thought the great Frank Sinatra, how could you do a thing like that to me? Uh, I'm going to be with Joe Piscopo tonight. I'm sure Joe will be singing a Frank Sinatra song or two, which I'm really looking forward to. That'll be a lot of fun. All right. Uh, without further ado, it is time for us to try and give away some money. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. A great article in the New York Post today about the 100 years of uh, WABC. Chris Libertini, I think, is quoted in this article more than anybody else, including John Katsimatidis. For whatever reason, the reporter took a real liking to Chris Libertini. He's quoted in this article like like crazy. So if you read that article, I think someone posted it in the Facebook group. If you read that article and you're wondering, who's Chris Libertini? That's Chris Libertini. All right, let's meet today's contestant, Rich, in New Jersey. Hello, Rich. Good morning, Frank. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Rich, you're up on this game, right? You know the rules. You know how to play? Yes, I do. Let's get started. Um, The timer will begin after I ask the first question. What state is New York City in? New York State. What method of communication do most deaf people use? Sign language. What are men expected to wear at a black tie affair? A tie in black color. What amendment? Uh, 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 no, a tie, a, uh, a, a suit with a tie, a suit with a black tie. All right, we'll we'll take it. What amendment guarantees freedom of speech and freedom of the press? Our First Amendment. What is the name of Donald Trump's youngest child? Barron. What team has the best record in Major League Baseball? Los Angeles Dodgers. What was the who was the first president of Russia after Mikhail Gorbachev? Uh, Putin. Ah, uh, no, I'm sorry. It, it was uh, Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin, Yeltsin was the first well, president of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. You did well, though. You got up to I'm question sorry, seven. Bro. It's okay. It's okay. It happens. I'm sorry for you. Hey, I was rooting number for eight? you. Can you give me number uh, number nine to see if I could have got those two? Uh, well, no, because then I have to write two new questions tomorrow instead of recycling okay. the ones that I have written. I'm going to put you on hold, Rich. Give Kenneth your information. A well-deserved piece of uh, Other Side of Midnight merchandise is coming your way. Uh, perhaps if you play your cards right, you can win a copy of Louise Perry's new book, which 
everybody is talking about. Some people love it. Other people just like it. Uh, The book is The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. I am looking to learn as much as I can about sex in the 21st century. And uh, my wife is looking for me to learn even more than I am. So I will be absolutely purchasing this book. Louise Perry is a writer and campaigner based in London. She's also a columnist at the New Statesman and a features writer for the Daily Mail. Uh, Louise, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hello. Good morning from London. Uh, So let's begin with the premise of your book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. What exactly, when, when we talk about the sexual revolution and the changes in attitude and the changes in psychology among women as it relates to sex, what are we referring to? What was the sexual revolution? So I argue that, I I mean, the sexual revolution is sort of two things. So one is the way that our lives change mostly as a result of the pill. The fact that for the first time ever in the history of the world, it's possible uh, for women to put their fertility on hold by taking this, you know, this one daily pill, the pill, we call it, right, with a capital P, because that's how important it is. Um, And then the other thing that happens is is ideology, right, about um, tearing down old traditional ideas about sex and, you know, becoming much more um, mainstream to be subversive about sex and to try new things and to be adventurous and all this kind of stuff, which gets portrayed as being um, a good news story for women in particular, right, that we, we used to be horribly restricted and now we are free to enjoy our sex lives in a way that we never could before. And there is a bit of truth to that, but... <clears throat> My argument in the book is that actually um, there are certain ways in which men and women are really different from each other, obviously on a physical level, in that women are the ones who can get pregnant and we're much smaller and weaker than men, which makes us more physically vulnerable and so on, which is obviously really important if you're talking about um, a man and a woman hooking up and being alone together, right? There's clearly a sort of power imbalance there that's never going to go away. Um, the other difference is also psychological, that, that women tend to be um, less keen to jump into bed with someone new, less interested in things like casual sex and watching porn and paying for sex and things like that. All of the things that have become much more socially acceptable post-sexual revolution. Um, and so instead of seeing this as, as saying, you know, how wonderful it is, it, I, I don't accept the idea that it's now wonderful that women can have sex like men and can enjoy all, you know, all of the kind of fruits of sexual revolution that previously only men could enjoy. Because actually, if you look at the data on it, and if you talk to talk to most women who who are more sort of typical, um, most women don't really want to do that. Right? Most women actually want to have um, monogamous relationships and um, are fully aware that actually things like hookups are really very risky for women in a way that they're just not for men. So I think that representing this has been all to women's benefit. It's a bit of a con, to be honest. Okay, so um, we're talking with Louise Perry, and uh, the new book is The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, out in the United States just this month. Been out in uh, the UK a couple months before, and it's already engendered a great deal of debate and a great deal of conversation. When I think, Louise, of the pre-sexual revolution attitude that the different genders had towards sex, 
Basically, it was a total double standard. Uh, it was men were celebrated as a stud. The more women they could date, the more women they could bed, uh, they would be uh, patted on the back by their buddies and, uh, and celebrated as the definition of machismo. Women, on the other hand were almost expected to remain celibate until marriage. And if they took on a, a lot of random sexual partners, they would be anything but celebrated by their friends. They would be pilloried by society and their own social group. Um, the sexual revolution, it seems to, in spite of the, as you put it, the asymmetry between the two genders, it seems to have normalized a male sexual attitude towards sexuality for women. Why is that wrong? Isn't it a healthy thing that women treating sex the same way that men have been? Um, shouldn't society be embracing that? If not, why not? I think you're exactly right. That's what it is. It's I, I, This kind of liberated sexuality for women is basically to do with imitating male sexuality um, or like a certain type of male sexuality. I mean, I don't want to be caricaturing men here, right? There are there are plenty of men who are totally happy to have monogamous relationships and want to get married and, you know, all of this stuff. I think that male sexuality is really very flexible. Um, and I write in the book about CAD and dad modes of male sexuality, right? Dad mode is all orientated around marriage and commitment and family, whereas CAD mode is... Um, uh, sewing your wild oats today. Is that an English expression? I don't know if Americans mm-hmm. know what that means. Um, and um, and what women have basically been encouraged to do is to imitate that kind of CAD mode. Um, the problem is that um, most women don't actually especially want to do that and it carries all sort of, sorts of costs for them. And also the sexual double standard does still exist, right? It is still the case that women do get judged in a way that men don't. The, the difference is now that it tends to be a bit more covert. So we so men won't generally talk openly about the fact that, you know, they wouldn't want to have say they wouldn't want to get married to an OnlyFans star, right? Like they'll 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 look at her pictures and they'll they'll bounty her in kind of CAD mode, but they don't actually want to commit to a woman that they consider to be promiscuous. It's the sort of thing that that men don't necessarily say openly, but they'll say privately and they'll sometimes tell researchers, which is why we've got data on this. So I think that actually the idea that we've let go of all the sort of old-fashioned restrictions isn't really true. I think that actually women are still um, restricted in all sorts of ways. It's just that now, um, you know, there's still a model that they're supposed to imitate. It used to be that that, that teenage girls in particular, young women, were really scared of of being um, seen as sluts. Now what they worry about is being seen as frigid or prudish. Um, but they're also treading this really difficult tightrope where on the one hand, they don't want to be frigid, but on the other hand, they don't want to be sort of consigned to the never going to marry this girl category Mm. um, from men who are secretly judging them for being promiscuous. So it's really difficult, and it certainly doesn't look like freedom to me. All right, uh, we're talking with Louise Fletcher, uh, excuse me, Louise Perry, apologize. Uh, Louise Perry, uh, you could check out her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. What has this new attitude for women uh, regarding sex done to women, in your view, in addition to uh, kind of forcing them to wear a hat that might not fit them uh, for the reasons that you've described, 
What has it done to be harmful to women, this notion of sexual liberalism? So a lot of women report a kind of, sometimes a slightly vague sense of being um, unhappy and distressed and particularly after, say, one night stands, feeling as though they've been um, they've been used, they've been disrespected, just general kind of drop in self-esteem and feelings of discomfort. Um, but also simultaneously a feeling like they sort of have to, they have to participate in, in a culture of casual mm. sex, that it isn't really optional. Um, the Sex in the City, right, is the is the original template for having sex like a man. I mean, and there's actually in the first ever episode, um, that line is used by um, Carrie Bradshaw, the, the protagonist, um, when she, she basically has um, she hooks up with an old boyfriend and is really selfish in bed, and then she and then she leaves, saying like, "Oh, I feel amazing. I've had sex like a man. It was just wonderful." Right, making it kind of explicit that what she's talking about is basically um, having sex in a in a like selfish, loveless, thoughtless way, where you don't have any sort of regard for your partner. But this is represented as being a good thing. I mean, I think it's just a sort of crude reaction against the old standards, right? Saying, well, women used to be used to not be allowed to do this, so like Yabu sucks, we're going to do it anyway. Um, which I don't think is a very kind of grown up <laughs> form of feminist politics. Mm. Um, it's interesting in Sex and City as well, right? Which is all about women kind of um, having sex like men, living like men in all sorts of ways. Um, you never see anything bad happen from it, right? You never see characters getting sexually assaulted um, or being made really miserable. Um, by those kind of sexual encounters, but in reality, that is that is how it goes most of the time, with a few exceptions. Um, and yeah, the the um, the cultural ideal actually doesn't normally live up to live up to expectations. In your view, has the sexual revolution also hurt men in any way? Yeah, I would say that it's only really a minority of men who've who've done well from it. Um, the sort of men who I think have are enjoying it are the, are the, the really high-status, attractive men, the sort of Hugh, the Hugh Hefners, right, the playboys, um, who can um, who really enjoy hooking up with loads of women and, and can attract loads of partners. Um, I think they're having a good time, although I would say that they there's a bit of shelf life for it. You know, you can, you can be that kind of playboy when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, but you do eventually reach the point where you... Um, you become too old and it becomes a bit pathetic, right? And it loses the glamour, which of course is what happened to you, Hefner, eventually. Um, I'd say actually that most men, though, um, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a good thing to be stuck in your mum's basement addicted to porn, right? Like this is the sort of reality for um, for all too many young men in the in in the 21st century. Um, it's definitely not obvious to me that actually it's better to live like that than to, to live the more sort of old-fashioned monogamous model, which we've apparently done away with for the sake of our freedom. But I don't think it's actually made anyone any happier, to be honest. So much of your premise deals with the fact that there is sexual asymmetry between men mm-hmm. and women. Just reiterate for us, if you can, Louise... Why is sexual symmetry between the genders a lie? We're really physically dissimilar, right? I mean, so obviously with things like um, pregnancy, right? One half of the human race gets, can get pregnant and the other half can't. And, um, you know, if, if you 
if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, um, it obviously makes sense that women are going to be more picky about who they have sex with because the pregnancy is nine difficult months followed by dangerous labour, followed by years and years of, of um, childcare. Um, it's hugely consequential for a woman, right, if she gets um, knocked up by some random guy who she's, you know, isn't a good match for her and isn't going to stick around. Um, whereas in theory, men can um, reproduce every time that they orgasm. It's just much sort of lower cost for them. Um, so if you look at it in those terms, it, it, it becomes very obvious why there are differences in, in male and female sexuality. You know, on average, right, there clearly are exceptions to that. And, and as I was saying, male sexuality is, is surprisingly flexible. But it's something that you see across cultures, across time periods, by no means unique to our society that's different um and uh, it's one of the reasons for instance why um basically every every sex buyer is male um majority of porn users and the overwhelming majority of of like regular and compulsive porn users are male um these differences are massive and i think that i think it's a mistake to try and pretend that they don't that they're not there um which is sometimes what i think feminists have done um, to try and, you know, striving so hard for equality um, that you sort of forget that actually sameness isn't achievable and isn't, isn't possible, that you will mm. eventually come up against this sort of brick wall of, of biological reality, which isn't going anywhere. So I think that the, the, the feminist task is actually to, to recognise those biological differences and think, OK, what kind of culture would actually, like be best for both men and women in terms of reducing harm. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to be listening to this conversation and it sounds like you're almost trying to turn turn back the clock to some extent on women's liberation. Are, are you some sort of old school uh, religious conservative that uh, is, is uh, straight out of the 1950s? <laughs> no, funnily enough, I do get asked that question a lot. No, I mean, I'm I'm coming at this from a feminist and a secular perspective. Um, I've spent basically my whole life working in against violence against women in various ways. I used to work for a rape crisis centre. Um, I work as a campaigner, changing the law in the UK on sexual violence, um, and as a journalist and author. You know, this has always been my my focus. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, if I if I happen to end up at some of the same conclusions as some conservatives, then so be it. But I'm starting from um, definitely feminist priors. So what are you advocating for, either on a societal basis or on an individual basis? Uh, what are you hoping women will do that will have a more beneficial effect on their outlook, on their well-being? So I basically think that trying to imitate male sexuality is a, is a complete dead end for women. I think that actually, if anything, it would be much more feminist, much better for, for women, and I think eventually for men as well, for men to imitate female sexuality, mm. right? To have to have more um, uh, more marriage, more commitment, more monogamy, you know, all the kind of stable stuff that women tend to want more than men. Um, but also, I think it's to, it's, it's to men's benefit as well. You know, as I was saying with the Playboys, you can't just kind of screw around forever. Um, like in the end, it's much it's much um, it's much more meaningful to have 
um, marriage and children than to be a sort of um, ageing Hugh Hefner-style figure. Um, so uh, so I do, for instance, have a chapter on on marriage where I make the case for it from 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 a feminist perspective and say, look, like particularly if you have children, um, mothers and children are really vulnerable. You know, they need support. Mm. They need to have at least one person who's around to look after, particularly in the early days. Um, I say this, I wrote, I wrote the book while I was pregnant and <laughs> had a small baby, so like, I'm very much speaking from experience. Oh, congratulations. There. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, uh, and actually, we've often dismissed marriage as a sort of, oh, it's old-fashioned, oh, it's religious, whatever. And, and I say, well, no, look, it had, a, it had a reason for it, right? Like, like people say, oh, it's oppressive to women or it restricts women. I was like, yes, it does. But you know what? It also restricts men. It kind of restricts everyone. That's sort of the point of it, right? <laughs> like, you make this promise in front of everyone you know um, that you're going to be faithful to this person. You're going to stick with them for, for your whole life. Yeah, no, that, um, which that's... Which is restrictive. Uh, that's but, true. That's one of the best endorsements for marriage I've ever heard. It's oppressive to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But also, like when you've made that promise, it also means that you've got you've got you've got a stable foundation on which to build your life and on which to and in which to have children, you know. And what we've seen post sexual revolution um, has been like an amazing rise in rates of single motherhood, which you wouldn't necessarily expect, right? You've, you've got this new technology which allows women to, to control their fertility. You wouldn't think that that would result in more single motherhood, um, but it does because because marriage as an institution has, has collapsed mm. pretty much. Um, but it does still remain available to people. It's like it might not now be the normal thing to do, um, but it's it, you, we all still have that option. Um, to 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 choose the more sort of to choose the more old fashioned route, sure. um, but not necessarily for old fashioned reasons. Louise, I, I have to actually really end it there. We're out of time, but uh, it's a fascinating conversation, and there's a whole lot of other stuff that I'd like to go over with you. Hopefully, we can have a, a part two to this conversation sometime soon. That'd be great. Thank you, <laughs> Louise Perry. Check out her book, "The Case Against the Sexual Revolution: A New Guide." to sex in the 21st century. If you'd like to be heard for 15 seconds, you could do so now. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Thanks to Andy B. Boy, this has been some show. Have we covered a lot of ground or have we covered a lot of ground? (whistles) Only on the other side of midnight, am I right? And now, if we didn't get to anything you wanted to hear about yet, you still have 15 seconds of fame to bring it to our attention. Uh, 800-848-9222. It is time for... 
other side of midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Leo on the Upper West Side. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Frank. Uh, since uh, Hillary announced that she's not going to run for president, Biden early morning announced his new slogan for the presidential run. Vote Biden, America last. <laughs> Russ in Queens. Yes, talking about 9-11. Don't think this thing can't happen again. These woke morons. I'm sorry they're offended by it. They got to go in other rooms. Comment. Jeff in Queens. Frank, are you aware that Kennedy has the same, does the same thing on her show, where she gets her guests to argue the opposite of their, of their ideology? Uh, no, I actually don't think I was aware of that. Cheech in Howard Beach. Anthony, you got to go to my barber. Your hair looks terrible. How you doing? 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 Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. My question for the Veep about her grape eating, was the grape seedless or seeded? And if it was seeded, did you spit or did you swallow? Victor in Manhattan. You know, I have a thousand shares each of Consolidated Cane Corporation, United Water Corporation, and National Gas Corporation. I asked my financial advisor what I should do. He said, sit on the can, hold the water, and then let the gas go. Brendan in Malvern. May God bless the WABC audience. May everyone realize their purpose in life is to know, love, and serve God. All right. Uh, and for those of you, Mike and William, I'm sorry we didn't get to you today. If you call in tomorrow, we will try and get to you first. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. Frank Moreno, good day.